1: And my father took me to see that. it was on a double bill with Little Caesar. Little Caesar's good, but I thought the public enemy was more truthful. And uh, some people say it's crude the way it's shot, but I don't think so. I don't think so. And you never, you never see the violence. It's always off camera. And uh, we understood. We, my father uh, there was, a, it was like, a, basically, he, he was with those people. He was, he was around them all the time. He grew up with them. So basically, he knew that that was the truth. Uh, you could call him Tom Powers. You could call him anything. You know, you could put any uh, ethnic uh, name up there, it's basically the same thing. It's basically the moment where he tells his brother, they didn't pin, you know, uh, uh, they pin medals on you uh, for killing those Germans over there, you know. And you get medals and I get what? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not to be respected, you understand? I mean, it's that kind of thinking, and it's the thinking of putting food on the table, protecting your family, and then it goes out of control. Yesteryear. Valley Who. Review.
2: Good evening ladies and gentlemen and welcome welcome to the yesteryear ballyhoo review many great sights await inside the picture palace of the past and we have plenty of ways to talk about the things inside so hurry hurry get your seats tonight we are going to take you for a ride a ride into the criminal underworld and all the insidious characters that dwell within these thugs mugs and lugs with a symbol of a nation distressed by prohibition and economic desperation turned over to the enterprise that provides no payout crime. And here you will see the birth of the genre as we know it today, courtesy of its two finest examples. First, you'll see, you'll be treated to the foundation laid at the hands of Mervyn Leroy and the charisma of Edward G. Robinson in Little Caesar. Then the ante will be upped by William Wellman with the fireball of fury and impulse that is James Cagney in The Public Enemy. So see the show, stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. Happy New Year, boys.
3: Say, there's a lonesome touring car down the street. I was wondering if you happen to know anything about it.
0: Oh, I got a good cafe business.
3: I don't know nothing about automobiles, what's been stolen. Well, you might if some of the bright young men around here had anything to do with it, wouldn't you? Yeah, she's through. She's out of the way. That's what she is.
1: You're lying. You wouldn't dare. I wouldn't, would I?
3: I'll show you. Rico, listen. I ain't going to spill anything if that's what you're scared of. You think I want my neck stretched? Well, you know too much. I ain't gonna take any chances. You're hanging around with me, see? No, I'm not. All right. You go back to that dame, and it's suicide. Suicide for both of you. Do you believe me, Olga? I want to believe you.
1: What's that? What you got there, Joe?
3: Yellow double crosser?
1: If it ain't Tom Powers and Matt, too. How are you, boys? Been out of town? Yeah, I was down home, visiting. Got a little drink first, Putty? Sure, sure, Tom. But I can't let you in just now. You see, I, I got a Jane inside. I, I'll bring it right out to you. Wait a minute, Putty-nose. We got words for you. What's up, Tom?
3: We got a little business to settle. Jane or no Jane?
1: We ain't sore are you, Tom? I've always been your friend. Sure, you taught us how to cheat, steal, and kill, and then you lammed out on us. Yeah, if it hadn't been for you, we might have been on the level. Sure, we might have been ding dings on a streetcar. Come on.
2: The film, we were get into the talk of the day. The gangster genre is alive and mostly well in our modern era and has managed to flourish throughout the decades. What we truly see today comes courtesy of the pictures in our discussion. When Rico Bandello and Tom Powers first appeared on the screen, they shocked the nation while also thrilling them with their charm and personality snugly fit into their criminal activities. For the first time, the gangster was allowed empathy, and it kicked off a trail of films leading to this very day that would attempt to analyze and debate characters who turn to these paths of the seedy and depraved, the high climbs they reached to the top, and their inevitable fall. Here to chat with me are two men who know very much about the subject of beer and blood as they are not only the hosts of pop culture brews but they also have an affinity for the genre itself ladies and gentlemen please welcome andrew sanders and tyler maybe
0: hello. hello hello well tyler um. can we just talk about how professional his intro is compared to ours i know we really need to work out i was just about that the entire
2: time <laughs> Here's what you do. Here's what you do. Listen to a shit ton of old time radio and try to do an imitation of a carnival barker. And that's all it is. (laughs) That's all it fucking is. Like, you guys can. I mean, I've got a tent back there. We've got the exotic dancers and the, and the uh, sideshow uh, all set to go. We're all set. We just we just need to be able to get out of COVID so I can <laughs> pop up a tent somewhere. Um, <laughs> uh, but, um, Andrew, you have already been in our presence before because of a certain thing called the Shamley silhouette. Yes. Um, which you were super supportive of in its existence. Um, and you managed to help us dissect the man who knew too much and the man who knew too much. And...
0: <laughs> Both of <us. laughs>
2: Uh, you know what's funny, uh, Aaron, who was on the episode with you, uh, he, I, I treated him to uh, back-to-back discussions on shitty kids in movies. Cause <laughs> we had the man who knew too much, and then he ended up doing Shadow of a Doubt because it has the most annoying, like, unnecessary middle child in the world. <laughs>
0: but <laughs> isn't that most middle children?
2: yeah i i guess it's i guess that by the third episode i'm just going to be saying aaron the reason i have you do these films is because i'm going to confront you about if you ever try to become a parent here's what you're in for but (laughs) um but tyler you are new to the uh to the ballyhoo shamley sphere and whatnot um tell us a little bit about um uh your role on pop culture Brews, but also just like you know your love for film
4: yeah i've um I guess I'm kind of the color commentary of, of pop culture brews. I don't <laughs> I don't know any of the facts or the dates, as I openly uh, remark in a lot of the episodes. But I, I love the narrative and the storylines in a lot of the pop culture pieces we discuss. Uh, so I'm the, I'm there for the I'm there for the banter. Really, that's kind of that's kind of why I'm brought in. I think so that yeah, Andrew you... doesn't have to stare at a wall. Pretty
0: much, you're much prettier the than the wall. I
4: I
2: would. I would love to have a video podcast of Andrew talking to a wall. That would, that would <laughs> just you would do it too. It'd go for hours. Yeah. And I need you to get indignant with that wall. <laughs> but, it has some um, very bad opinions. Yeah, but uh, you guys also have been podcasting throughout the uh, COVID-19 situation. How's it been going for you guys both in terms of how, having to overcome that
0: little hurdle? Yeah, I mean, it, it's been good. I mean, when COVID first hit, we, uh, we did start recording separately. And then when things died down, I think like a lot of people, we got a lot more comfortable um, recording together, uh, but we're now back recording remotely.
4: Yeah, it's it's not bad.
0: It's not bad. We we just yeah. run around each other's houses and leave beer on the doorstep. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the nice
0: beer delivery men that you are.
2: Yeah. You're 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 doing a little bit of bootlegging yourselves in that respect. Yeah, I I we uh real nerds went into basically went over to Zoom almost overnight and the only times we've been in the room for each other are we've had to separate it out when we do film explosions, which go up to four hours and have a video component with them we need to we need to have as many people in the room as we can so we generally divide it up by three and then have the other three coming in remotely but um as of the recent lockdowns we've been backing off of that and going back to just strictly remote so um but it's uh it's definitely a uh a very uncomfortable situation for everybody, but the good news is podcasting is booming discussions are wanted. And so, and we're going to have one of those today. Um, I, so this, uh, this episode actually kind of got kicked off over, uh, in regard on, on Twitter itself, because I was, uh, watching this double bill that we're about to discuss. And <laughs> the one thing leads to another, and I'm texting you guys via Instagram going like, let's, let's get you on mic for this. Um, um, Andrew, you we talked about Hitchcock with you, um, but for both of you, I'll ask this question: What is your initial experience with Golden Age Hollywood in terms of the uh,
0: your exposure to it and your appreciation of it? Um, so, <clears throat> back in back in old Blighty, they used to show old movies in the afternoons, like on <laughs> Channel Four. And um, I can't tell you like the first Golden Age Hollywood movie I watched, but the first old movie you know being probably 10 years old and it's from the 50s so it's therefore ancient (laughs) is um the old england comedy uh the lady killers without guinness and i had never Ah. seen anything like it and from there, my love of cinema just spiraled out of control that's a wonderful film it's a wonderful film it's a
2: film that i saw after the remake and i like both of them for different reasons the remake is underrated um, it is, and I think it's. I think a lot of it has to do with. Uh, it's the Coen Brothers, so you're expecting something vastly different at this point from them. And yeah, I what I like about it is that it does embrace. It embraces not just a certain elements of the British film, but it also embraces their natural shtick with screwball comedy and just you know the 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 amount of morality they shove into it for the irony in the film is is still I. I still love when uh, Ryan Durst's character accidentally shoots himself. I think it's <laughs> it's one of the dar- one of the darkest. Like no bullets, <laughs> just- <laughs> and then just Tom Hanks just recites Edgar Allan Poe before hanging himself. <laughs> it's uh it's definitely a dark. Both have their dark elements and dark mirrors, but that that remake is dark as shit. And Tyler, um, what, what is your exposure to older films of the past that don't involve Tom Hanks dying off a bridge? <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, anything with Tom Hanks, I'm I'm glued to this TV set for. So, but um, <laughs> I th- I think uh, I think my very first old uh, classic film was It's a Wonderful Life, uh, mm-hmm. which my my father treated our entire family to every Christmas Eve. That was like kind of our tradition. Um, And, I mean, he's a big old cinema buff, so, you know, he would always be downstairs watching TCM and, like, Casablanca and some of these gangster movies that we're going to talk about today were always on. And uh, I think you had an episode on The Black Cat, your first episode, Uh, and that, that was also a classic Halloween movie. I love those classic monster movies as well.
2: Yeah, there's nothing like sitting down with the family for Halloween to watch incest and satanic cults. I I, 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 <laughs> I, I, I truly believe that is the hallmark of the holiday season. <laughs> Why wait till Halloween? Uh. <laughs> 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 or, or you don't get it, Andrew. We do this the entire month of October. This is just a one-day operation. <laughs> but... I'm I have a follow-up question in regards to that. What is your history with the gangster genre period?
0: Doesn't have to just be the old uh timers. It's the gangster genre period. Um so my history is I uh, when I was 15, I saw The Godfather and it broke me. And uh <laughs> I started devouring a lot of Coppola, a lot of Scorsese, those kind of movies. Uh, and then when Mm -hmm. I was at university, I actually wrote my dissertation on gangster movies. Uh, and it was about the progression of gangster movies and how it reflected, uh, the socioeconomic status of the day, that really boring stuff. But what that allowed me to do, (laughs) what that allowed me to do is I went back to, um, the old silent movies. Uh, I was watching the original 34 Scarface, these two movies, I wrote an entire uh, chapter of my dissertation literally on the golden age of gangster movies. Wow.
2: That, that, and that, now that is a admirable feat because that is something that I, I, that's something I wish I would have done in film school instead of just trying to make the things like that's <laughs> what I've been learning with this podcast is I wish I had just written about film history and <laughs> not yeah. bothered with trying to create shit with money that I don't have. <laughs> but, um, and then Tyler, do you, do you kind of have a similar history with it? Like where you start with one of the seventies films and then go backwards and forwards from there?
4: Uh, honestly, like, I think the very first, well, I, I really love film noir and I think that mm-hmm. film noir and the gangster films just really connect well. Um, and I think of like LA Confidential and, uh, you know, more modern, like Pulp Fiction or The Departed, um, those really spurred my love. Uh, and then I had to go backwards and find really good movies, uh, even, even more <laughs> black and white, uh, and even yeah. more gritty, you know? Um, so I don't know. Near, I didn't write my PhD dissertation on gangster films, So I don't know if I'm going to have that level of, uh, you know, socioeconomic conversation. But uh...
2: it's OK, Tyler. I don't have a PhD either. So we could just make fun of Andrew for being a nerd. Job is,
0: so, that's
4: I'm here <laughs> the,
0: the reason I chose that subject was I couldn't think of anything to write. And I was sitting in my uh, room at university and I just noticed I had the Godfather Trilogy VHS box set on top of the TV. <clears throat> Uh, and it was the one where they're all cut into one movie. It's amazing, and I was like, yeah soda i'm gonna I'm gonna write about the Godfather, um which was only chapter two, so I had to really uh <laughs> dive back into everything else so
2: <laughs> yeah, well that's a but that's a great way to segue into our discussion because I think the gangster genre of of late has been under a strange fire that I've noticed, whether through film Twitter or you know uh, the way f- these films are covered. The most recent example that we have of a film that dives into what we're talking about is the irishman which scorsese released with netflix in 2019 and um it's a film that i think divided a lot of people whether uh, from a couple different sectors whether it was it's um uh uh uh, out uh, out, uh, dealing with uh gender roles dealing with masculinity but also there were people who were claiming that the movie was boring and they're wrong um Um, but you know that's you know that's 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 whatever it's their it's their right to be wrong i suppose um but more importantly it it has brought up the discussion of like how are these characters dissected how are these characters portrayed on screen who is who is actually taking the content seriously and who isn't but in order to, I've always felt in order to fully understand the gangster genre, you have to look back at where it starts and also understand the restrictions that the, the these particular films had in their period. Um, like prior to uh, the Warner Brothers era of gangster films, you have things like Musketeers of Pig Alley. You have the several various different short Edison films that deal with crime in a documentary type fashion. Um, and you know one of the bi- Still one of the first big hits Of cinema The Great Train Robbery is Technically a gangster movie in a lot of respects It's why Scorsese homages It at the end of Goodfellas Because he's wrapping everything around um, But uh, For for this in particular It's good to discuss uh, Little Caesar and Public Enemy back to back Primarily because they come out in the same year Three months apart from each other mm-hmm. um, And more importantly, it they also they both end up getting at the same idea in different ways. Um, the ideas of like how the impulses of these men lead to their downfall., um, and also both both in their own way are very unafraid of telling the truth of the world that they're in. Um, which I think that it's interesting for a movie that would have had certain restrictions. it what these are pre-code, but they don't have the same restrictions as uh, that they're that they're going to have in the next couple of years after this Um, so they are able to get away with a lot of violent and depraved behavior Um, so like in watching these films for the recording I obviously you guys have seen them before uh, in some fashion so you guys aren't unaware that these films can get gritty but um, did you notice up at the front how like were you taken aback at all by how dirty they really are um, cause I would argue that they are a lot, like they're just as, uh, 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 touchy in the subject matters that they handle as the, as a Scorsese movie can be.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the, I, I mean, the, the thing that impressed me is, um, when you look at a lot of older movies, uh, the majoritively on sets, everything's controlled because, you know, they're still learning sound at that point, really uh but seeing them out in actual cityscapes and uh you know getting into trucks and in dockyards and things like that i i mean i was surprised at how gritty these movies got and grimy yeah. <laughs> they are extremely grimy
2: they don't they don't pull any punches they um, what's interesting is it, it, there's a note within um, one of the best resources for this information, apart from the bullets and blood series that Secret History of Hollywood did, is honestly Warner Brothers has been very good at curating the legacy of their films, um, where they basically invented and cure the only film that they made really that uh is considered a that they didn't make that is considered a classic is Scarface. Like everything else, really belongs to them yeah. for the most part. Um, but this uh, what's interesting about these films is that they had to be studio bound because of the sound element. But their sets for Little New York, like that main set of Little New York, where it's just, you know, that urban city set that they reused a ton. It it still has the feel of realism to it, but it obviously is not when you did things like Musketeers, of pig alley and uh, Underworld and stuff like that. You were silent film. You were able to go out and shoot on the locations in the places where these gangsters actually were at the time. So like sound, the the consequence of having sound is that you do lose the location of it, but they do more than enough to make up for that. Like Like, in terms of how they portray different environments with it. And I, I, especially in the public enemy, there's, you know, it's like Tom, Tom and uh, Tom and Matt, uh, you know, are found in some very, very dingy and dirty places throughout the movie. Um, (laughs) But um, so I will uh, go ahead and just ask one last question before we start diving into the these two particular films. Um, when you are watching films of this era, um, a- a- apart from what we just discussed with how grimy and how seedy they are, uh, what do you take away from the performances that you see given on these? Uh, because they are of an era, Obviously, where you know t- speaking style is different, talking is different, speed of delivery is different. But like, do these performances
0: hold up to you? I would say Cagney's definitely does. And it's, <laughs> it's funny because Ty- Tyler and I were, oh, Ty- Tyler and I were texting a little bit about this. So what? I, as visceral as Little Caesar is, when you compare it to Public Enemy, it feels very stilted. Yes,
2: yes, we are definitely going to get into that part of it.
0: Uh, and you and you look at you look at Cagney's performance versus I, Edward G. Robinson's performance became the cliche.
2: Yes. Yes. Very much so. It's to the point where when you listen to him deliver lines in Little Caesar. You I, I got the impression that he's actually been over exaggerated in the impressions like because he doesn't do the snarl each time. Like, Chief Wiggum is an exaggeration of Robinson. It's not Robinson. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's... <laughs> Pick <him> away, toys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um,
4: uh man uh, uh, amen, man yeah, yeah. that's like a looney tunes character of a gangster right that's that's what you imi- yeah. imagine yeah. so, imagine the
2: the amount of merry melodies and looney tunes that you can get on these box sets too that show those impressions being done with the feature that is accompanying them is yeah. staggering like i, I <laughs> hbo max was like like one of the things that sold me on it was like oh they're gonna show all their archived looney tunes and whatnot and i sifted through it and i'm like there's not enough here. What the fuck are you talking about? Like, where's all the, <laughs> all the, where's all the deep dive shit? <laughs> I love your new series, but that's not my point here, buddy. <laughs> like, <laughs> that new series is amazing too. <laughs> like, it, that I, I still have to watch animaniacs. Um, cause it just dropped as of now, but like the fact that Looney Tunes came back the way it did is it, it just fills my heart with joy. Um, but we're, but we're not here to talk about bugs bunny. We're here to talk about, uh, Tom Powers and Rico Bandello. Um, so we'll we'll kick this off a little bit with Little Caesar since it is the one that gets released first on January 9th, 1931. Um, this is a film based off of a book by uh, W.R. Burnett, a, a figure who would end up becoming uh, a rather prominent screenwriter for Warner Brothers. Um, he wrote several novels, but within the film world, he ended up doing work on the script for Scarface. Um, he ended up working with Warner Brothers a lot um, in, within this era. Uh, King of the Underworld is based on one of his short stories, and he—that's um, another example of that gangster genre. But he—he um, he ended up doing the script for Action in the North Atlantic, um, The Man I Love, The Walls of Jericho. Uh, Wasn't it, he in Great Escape,
4: or didn't he write Great Escape?
2: I'm looking. Yes, he wrote the script for it. So he's—he's yeah. he's okay. been all over the place. He, he one of the things that I like is that his novel The Asphalt Jungle um uh or the, the novel The Asphalt Jungle got turned into a movie by John Huston and he ended up having a contribution to it that's uncredited, but you can see Burnett traits in the uh, in the Asphalt Jungle, like certain things that he obviously was very into. Um but the um the 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 cream of the crop for me in terms of his filmography is High Sierra. Um, which is Bogart's Bogart has a lot of uh, turns uh, into stardom that happened gradually. And high Sierra is one of the biggest of them. Um, and that was written by W.R. Dar- Burnett and John Houston. And a lot of that led to John Houston going like, you know, you'd be really good as Sam Spade and bogey going, sure. Why the fuck not? And then that's how movie history was made. Just <laughs> actually, it's a little bit, um, there's a figure in Little Caesar that will play very prominently into um, uh, Bogart's career, technically. But, um, but Burnett's novel, it gets picked up by Warner Brothers. They bring in Edward G. Robinson. Edward G. Robinson at the time um, was just another stage actor, um, he, but he had done films prior. He had even played gangsters on stage. Um, born Emanuel Goldenberg, he changes his name to Edward G. Robinson because at the time you couldn't put Emanuel Goldenberg on uh, a, a marquee and have anybody want to go in, so he had to change his name. A lot of uh, actors of this era had to change their change their names for screen, uh, screen star purposes. Um, but he gets the role of Rico Bandello in the film, and it's a film that unfortunately... Uh, stereotype typecasts him for the rest of his life to the point where it's amazing how many chances he gets to break out of those stereotypes. Um, And thankfully the one, the films we tend to remember him for the most now aren't even films like little Caesar or a slight case of murder or brother orchid, or uh, we remember him. I I would say a lot of people remember him for double indemnity um, uh, nowadays because double indemnity has this rather long shelf life that has endured. Um, and the thing that we'll get out of the way is that this film has a couple of different interpretations in terms of its basis. One is obviously there's a lot of comparisons that could be made to Al Capone, um, uh, notorious Chicago mobster who was taken down by taxes and then played by Tom Hardy. Um, and, uh, the, uh, <laughs> uh, the key thing though is that it's also, uh, largely inspired by Sam Cardinelli who was, um, uh, led one of the black hand gangs in Chicago prior to prohibition. Um, and uh, Sam Cardinelli's saga is actually covered in Secret History of Hollywood in a brutal way, but he, um, there's a lot of different ripped-from-the-headlines figures that get tossed into something like Little Caesar because Little Caesar ends up being a very basic rise-and-fall story. Um, you don't have anything particular standing out for it because the genre hadn't really been invented yet until Little Caesar. So while I agree that Little Caesar is the more stilted one, the one thing we can acknowledge about it hands down is that it ultimately does set the foundation for every gangster movie going forward. Virtually every trope is in this movie Mm -hmm. for the first time. Um, And to an extent where... Uh, it's amazing how the uh, there's something about Mervyn Leroy's direction that is very very tame, but there are shots in it where I'm like Scorsese stole that. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> it's it's not uh, it's not anywhere close to uh, a a contest or a debate like Scorsese stole certain shots and um, I think within that we can dive into Little Caesars directed by Mervyn Leroy, um, uh, produced by Hal B. Wallace and Daryl Evzanek, two of the Biggest figures in Warner Brothers history That would end up being larger figures In their own right Halby Wallace is uh, and a legend in the industry Because Casablanca um, uh, The film was written by Francis Edward Farrow Robert Lord and Daryl F. Zanuck Contributing based on the book by W.R. Burnett Starring Edward G. Robinson Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Glenda Farrell um, We have music by Erno Rappé uh, And cinematography by Tony Guadio. Um, And this is a First National Pictures release because Warner Brothers had acquired First National Pictures uh, in a post-jazz singer world. And one of the conditions of the acquisition was that they had to have at least four films uh, under the First National banner released per year. So this is before they really fully liquidate First National entirely and just put everything under the Warner Brothers banner. So when you watch Little Caesar the first thing you see is first national pictures. It doesn't say Warner brothers. Um, But, you know, I I mean, I, I will say we open up, they're already using sound to communicate the violence without having to show anything on screen. That first shot outside of the gas station is unnerving in a lot of ways because you don't see what's going on. You just hear those noises um, of, of the robbery taking place. And it already sets up the fact that, like, okay, we are in a tough world. We're in a bad world. And then we get into the diner where Edward G. Robinson becomes a time traveler because he just (laughs) sets back. I think we've talked about this before on um, uh, Shamley, but there's no way that there's no way you can get away with moving the hand back on a clock today. You can't. You can't do it. It doesn't work. <laughs> um, and it, I, I, and this is where we get this diner discussion. Where this is the one thing I have a complaint about this movie is that the dialogue is very, very on the nose. Yeah, uh, it, it's very, very on the nose. Not in a way that I disrespect it. It's just that I am very aware that the dialogue becomes nuanced literally three months later in the public enemy. <laughs> um, but we get Rico basically going like, I want to be somebody I want to be, I-, I want to be a big figure here. So we already have the sense of aspiration that he deals with. Um, and Andrew, when you wrote your dissertation, did, did you kind of use, use these two films or more specifically little Caesar as your jump off point um, in terms of like where the genre gets its start?
0: Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Because I mean, you're already talking about, Um, I mean, to your your point about the dialogue being on the nose, this being the first kind of real gangster movie, it's figuring itself out and he literally lays out the entire plot. But if you look (laughs) at the evolution of the gangster movie, every gangster movie is a rise and fall story. Without mm-hmm. without exception, it's always rise and fall. Even if you take something like The Godfather, it's a rise and fall story over three movies. You could argue that he has the fall in in two when he can't keep the violence out of his own family. K. Okay. Um, but <laughs> but you can you can overlay every gangster movie um, and every scene plays out the exact same way. Yeah, but not
4: every gangster movie has a best friend that just wants to dance. You
3: know? <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Yes. Yes.
2: Douglas Fairbanks Jr., ladies and gentlemen. This guy has, wants nothing to do Although, with
0: gangsters. I, I want to point out something about the epitome of the gangster, James Cagney, was he hated playing gangsters. He wanted to sing and dance. This is true. His first job was as a uh, chorus girl. Yep,
2: Yep. he was a chorus girl. He he was he was a natural Hoofer on stage before he even stepped foot into the Warner Brothers lot. And what's interesting, as we bring this up, for the character that Douglas Fairbanks Jr. is playing, Joe Massara, he is supposedly very much based on George Raft himself. George Raft, a very much a hoodlum figure that crawled out of the gutter, got on stage, became his own version of a hit, and then it would end up becoming defined by the gangster genre with Scarface, um, and then he would go on to then decline every role that Humphrey Bogart got famous for. So that's, <laughs> that's what George raft is known for. In my mind, he's also known for looking kind of like Ben Affleck in live by night, but that's just a personal opinion. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that, that movie should have been better. And um, then the
0: cool thing about George raft was he was part of the reason they were able to make Scarface cause Capone tried to shut it down many times. Yeah. Um, but because they had raft in there who had like some real authenticity Uh, Capone was like, yeah, we'll see where it goes.
2: (laughs) He's just like, yeah, 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 whatever. I'm trying to deal with Elliot Ness right now and a group of untouchables. That's what they keep calling themselves. I don't fucking know. (laughs) Damn it, Kevin Costner. Just just go and save the oceans. Look, I don't like, I don't like, you know, the one I really hate is Andy Garcia. He's really pissing me the fuck (laughs) off right now. (laughs) He thinks he's hot shit. And let me tell you, he's not hot shit. You know what he's going to get known for? walking around in fancy suits getting robbed by Danny Ocean. That's what he's going to be known for. I don't understand how Capone knows that shit and already. He's falling yeah, already. in love with his cousin
0: in Godfather 3. <laughs> yeah. All roads lead to Godfather. Yeah. yeah. That,
3: that,
2: <laughs> that's just I mean, look, I al Capone find that sick and I don't understand I don't understand why Sean Connery hasn't kicked his ass yet, but I hope it happens before we shoot him cuz <laughs> Um, but yes, the 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 Masera character is very much a George Raftian character. but like the, the the difference between a George Raft who obviously was tough in real life is Joe Macera literally has no toughness about him whatsoever Never. apart from what he's had to do to survive up to this point. He literally in that diner scene is just like, yeah, but don't you think there's more to life? Nah, there's nothing to life. See, there's nothing. Like, <laughs> <laughs> only power. Yeah. <laughs> Shut up, uh, Joe. I, and I, I, I know we. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, you're out of your fucking mind. See. <laughs> Joe, you're supposed to be my best friend. See. Yeah.
0: And of course... Joe, you're <laughs> pissing me off, but I love you.
2: <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about, Joe? You're my future husband. What are you talking about? <laughs> um. Yeah, we'll get into um. Uh, some of the thematic tones here in a second but as the film progresses we see Rico Bandello uh, get into uh further into the life of crime because he joins he he gets into um uh he gets into the gang of San Vittori played by Stanley Fields who is the most wishy-washy leader of a mob you'll ever meet in your life um but so yeah he he moves into the San Vittori gang. There is a shot of here that I know is very much Scorsese, uh, Scorsese ridden to this day. When he goes into the room with, uh, when Sam brings him into the room with Rico and he shows him all the different gangsters and does a roll call on their names, <laughs> he's literally doing the same shot in Goodfellas when, uh, when he's going through like all the different gangsters who are at the club in the, like within the first 25 minutes of that movie. So it's, I don't think Mervyn De LeRoy was a bad director. I just think that he had moments of brilliance in otherwise standard shots or standard direction. Um because this film doesn't have the same amount of visual panache as Public Enemy, but it is it has its it has moments that you're going to see uh carried on throughout the decades. Yeah. Um and not and it's not even just The visual scheme he gets into quite frankly the uh, the amount of how much violence you can show because what the codes gonna allow and not allow and also their own personal judgment on like will an audience find this distasteful. Will they be too appalled? Will they demand that the Breen office and the William Hayes code be born and screw us over? You know, they're, they're thinking like all these different angles on how to handle the violence in this film. Yeah. Um, well, and what, what's,
0: so- what's great about that scene as well is when he is introducing um, all of the gangsters. And it's hard to say because we've seen this scene a thousand times since then. But it's such an amazing information dump on you. And you know exactly who each of these characters are, even if they don't have a line the rest of the movie, you know who that guy is, you know what he's gonna do. And it's just this fantastic shorthand.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's, and that, one of the beauties of this film and why it does still hold up in a lot of respects is that partially because of our exposure to those things, as you discussed, and like having seen these things a thousand times in tropes. It can carry an audience. Um, some of their transitions and overhead shots are still pretty fantastic in terms of moving you into the action. Like when they move over into um, uh, the uh, inside the Palermo Club, uh, or the where they're gonna pull off the robbery of the nightclub where Joe works, um, we get that title card, but we also get this overhead shot of the gambling, and we really get to see the environment of twenties. Uh, what it's supposed to be Chicago. We are not told. That it's Chicago explicitly. We are just told it's a city. It's the big city. But it's very much Chicago. This is very much Capone or Carnelli. These are these are the figures they are drawing on. So, of course, it's Chicago. They just don't say it out loud. Mm-hmm. Um, and within this, we also get further rift between Joe and Rico because Rico is going to bring him in on a job to rob the nightclub that he works in and joe doesn't want to do it because again as stated he just wants to dance um and uh and rico's just like yeah yeah yeah, you can dance but you don't
4: leave the fucking gang you can dance if you want to you can leave your friends behind yeah but can can we can
0: we talk about how (laughs) joe wants to leave the life of crime yet he still carries a piece on him
4: yeah well
2: safety on
0: on the streets of chicago and then he's like it's just a good luck charm who has that as a good luck charm (laughs) Well, well, you know,
2: he has to, he has to tell Glenda Farrell, the, 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 his dance partner, Olga, he has to tell her like, you know, like when you're in the mob, you're in for life, you know, much, much like debt in America. Once you're in, you're in for life. But, um, but Hey guys, maybe we should all just become gangsters. I don't know. I guess I think we're, we're all hitting the point in COVID where we've lost our damn minds. Once (laughs) you're in, you're never out.
4: So yeah.
0: I'm I'm am i I'm actually have, a shock.
2: Have you now or have you ever been a member of the Bandello Crime Syndicate, Andrew? <laughs> I played it. the film <laughs> Oh oh Tyler, I see. You well, just too tell much. me one question. What color is my pen? <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, Joe, regardless, goes in on the scheme. And one of the big through lines in this and why Rico can get to power is because he um, uh, it's established up front that there's a new commissioner on crime uh, one McClure um, who you may remember from such uh, wonderful episodes of The Simpsons as (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, but no McClure is the new crime commissioner. And he um uh, does not uh, – he, he obviously, if he had known what kind of nightclub he was in, he would not have attended it because he didn't realize, oh, it's a gangster outfit. Like, you're the commissioner on crime. How did you not know that <laughs> the club you were in – So
0: stupid.
4: He, he, just... didn't, he didn't sit down for the morning briefing. He just got <laughs> introduced. And still in the middle of his training. you know
2: Oh, he, he missed his Zoom meeting. That's the problem. He missed his Zoom meeting. Well, what,
0: I, what I love is, like, you know, prohibition is going on. The sale of alcohol is illegal and he's at this party where there's a ton of drunk people going, hmm, nothing wrong here." Wait, this is run by criminals?
2: This like, do you not realize like I I don't know like what what's going on here? This, <laughs> this none of this none of this holds water unless he's there to intimidate other people and then he's just like, "Wait a second, I'm in a hotbed of gangsters?"
0: What? This is this is non-alcoholic champagne, right? Thanks. <laughs>
2: Like, Flaherty, why didn't you fucking tell me what's going on? Oh, God, we're going to get to Flaherty because he has a voice oh. that I kind of wish I had in real life just to annoy people. Um, Marchinelli's self well, gone he,
4: through the roof. He
2: becomes,
0: <laughs> he becomes the other cliche of the genre. He becomes like the Joe Friday. Like, Joe Friday is this yeah. guy.
2: Yes very much so. He is very much a Joe Friday figure. <laughs> like, like that is and it, but it, the difference is that his voice sounds like he should be in the gang itself. That's, that's my, my problem with him. Like, like, like I
0: just love that he looks permanently asleep. <laughs> like so we, we we what we should talk about so this, this, this guy is um the cop. So uh, you know, the, the commissioner of crime gets shot by Rico, and then this cop's just like going around going, Look, see, we know your boys did this, see. We're gonna take it down, see. But his eyes just do not open the entire time. He
2: kind of it, it's it's when you talk about directing an actor and you talk about eyeline, this is why I don't like to act in other people's films, because I don't know shit about eyeline and I respect others' ability to do that thing. Yeah. This guy I I don't know what it is. He might have been more comfortable on stage. Um I I didn't look up Thomas Jackson's history, but like he was a sta- Oh yeah, he was a stage actor. He w- worked a lot on Broadway, so like if he's on film here, like he might be still settling into the idea of film acting. Um because he ends up being in a ton of films up until 1948. Um so he's not unaware of how the camera works yet
4: but at the I time like... counts over how many times he looked at the camera it was striking <laughs> my wife crazy <laughs> <laughs> like did all you look at right. the camera again ok yep
2: alright all Tyler now this is the moment when you're going to watch me take down Rico see <laughs> like, <laughs> look into my eyes
4: you know I'm serious now
2: you look me in the eye and tell me that I'm not sincere. <laughs>
0: yeah, I better open my eyes if you want me to look in them.
4: No, that's the only time that he had his <laughs> eyes open was when he was staring directly into the
2: camera. <laughs> yeah. Spe- oh, by the way, I want to make sure I bring this up. Speaking of eyes being opened or closed, there is a fun little, hi- little piece in here that Mervyn Leroy talked about in an interview. Apparently, because... Uh, uh Edward G. Robinson had never fired an actual gun. Before. Oh yeah. When he, oh, when, yeah. He, when he when he when he had him firing a gun for one of the shots, Eddie G. Robinson closed his eyes in the middle of the in the middle of firing the gun. And Mervin LeRoy went up and like, okay, that's fine. We need to take it again because your eyes are open. And Eddie was like, what are you talking about, Mervin? What what I don't understand. Like he's like, no, your eyes were open. No, they were closed. What are you talking about? No. Not at all. And so they had to keep doing it, keep doing it. Finally. When he couldn't do it, he couldn't keep his eyes open. Mervyn Leroy taped his eyes open, and <laughs> in, in, in basically the predecessor to *A Clockwork Orange* and *Malcolm McDowell*, we're gonna we're gonna stilt those motherfuckers' eyes open so that he can look like a desperate killer as he shoots a gun. Now, like in the way people fire guns in this film, I actually prefer it to the way. They fire guns in the public enemy and, and James Cagney's my particular um offender on this one. But I mean I'm not a gun expert. I'm just aware of what looks silly and what doesn't.
0: Um but oh, speak, speaking of that speaking of him shooting the gun though, and Scorsese stealing shots, they reuse they basically recreate the shot from Musketeers of Pig Alley.
2: Yes, very much so. And they the the, the lineage of this genre Stayed, di- getting back all the way to Musketeers of Pig Alley, which I- I'd argue is D.W. Griffith's only wonderful contribution to cinema. <laughs> um, I guess, was I guess that. he did but- other things that wasn't just the one bad movie, but... <laughs> you made the one bad movie look the yes he but yeah but Scorsese draws on that because Leroy's drawing on it because this is all they know of how to, they're having to create the sound version of this genre the only other film they would have had to look at in terms of where there's precedent there's two films they could have looked at one is Underworld which is Joseph von Sternberg um, and this is before he really teams up with Dietrich and makes some classic films <laughs> but the other one is um, Lights of New York, which is the first all talking sound movie that Warner Brothers puts out because the jazz singer was a partial one. It was like 60, uh, 70, 30. And then The Singing Fool, which is 60, 40. And then City of New York uh, City of New York is the uh, the first one in 1928
0: to have all talking sound. Um, it's yeah. also a terrible movie. But I, but I like uh, that movie. I like watching the actors like move from microphone to microphone. I okay, that's fun to watch. They're like, I'm is, gonna talk it, it, into these flowers now. Yep. Yeah. <laughs>
2: no, no, no. Yes, 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 yes. yes. yes, yes. <laughs> let's, just, let's just all watch Singing in the Rain again, guys. We don't need to talk about gangster movies. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. And I can't stand them. <laughs>
0: it's one of my all-time favorite <laughs> yeah. movies oh god Singing
2: in the Rain Singing in the Rain will be an episode not because like it's it's hard to say if it compares really to anything of today I just really like that fucking movie um (laughs) uh, but um but Anyway, let's we'll get back to Rico for a second. So Rico's on technically, like, uh, he's fucked up. He's fucked up big time. Sam informs him that he's fucked up big time. But Sam's also, as we said, he's wishy-washy. And Rico's just like, shut the flying fuck up. I'm taking over your gang. <laughs> and, and, and direct quote. Answers.
4: That's all I'm going to say.
2: Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Sam needed a TED Talk or something to inspire him, like one of those self-help coaches. He really needed something to get. Cause he he ends up not only han- seceding over control of the gang to Rico, he becomes his most yes man of yes men imaginable, especially at the banquet scene. Um, but this is this is how Rico assumes power. He's already been given the nickname Little Caesar because of his, like there's a lot of ambition within him, and this is just the The allegories to an actual despot like Caesar are, you know, obviously prevalent in there. That that the grab for power, the fall because of the grab for power. This is the, I mean, like everything's over here laid out. Like, Eber G. Robinson once said that this film is much like a Greek tragedy because it has that rise and fall. And I I'd, I I'd
4: agree with him. Like, it's like, it's there, like there, with there is Caesar. I mean, like his best friend betrays him, which is yeah, basically yeah. where he begins his downfall. <laughs> um, yeah, I, to yeah, George is- Raft. <laughs> Don't get in the way of a man who wants to dance.
2: No. <laughs> no. <laughs> and and you know what? I mean, Joe Massara taught that lesson to his little boy Bob, who changed his last name to Fossey, and uh, you know, Broadway history was made. <laughs> That's this is the, this is our version of all that jazz. It's it has to do a lot with Douglas Fairbanks Jr. and gangsters, <laughs> but. <laughs> <laughs> and also it's not well shot, but, um, so yeah, we, we, we have the ascension of, of little, little Caesar rising to the top. And from here, he keeps grabbing power, grabbing power, grabbing power. And it, it a lot of it leads into that banquet scene. Um, but there's a, there's a section before that where there, there's a character by the name of, um, Uh, Tony who has a conflict in his heart about what has gone down and he goes to console console himself with his mother which the commentary on little Caesar is actually one of the most fascinating parts of that DVD because he talks he points out a really good fact which is that most of the films of the gangster era would have the lead character have a big mother connection and in this one in its starting point, it's just a foot soldier in the mob. It's not, um, anybody of actual consequence. If anything, we're going to find out he's easily disposable once it's discovered that he's going to, you know, confess to a priest, let alone to anybody else. Mm -hmm. Um, and we get a shot after, uh, well, I mean, first of all, let me, we, we should bring up, uh, the, uh, Otero character who becomes, (laughs) uh, The man that sits from the desk. Yeah, Little Caesar's bitch is is Otero, Um, or his no. He's your he's his biggest fan. Um, And uh, but when Otero gets word that Tony is going like nah, 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 my my ma talked me down, and I'm gonna go you know talk to the priest, and then I'm gonna go put us all in jail. And little Rico Rico's just like well no not at all. And there's a shot. Of Tony getting shot that is beautiful because they did not want to show a shot of Edward G. Robinson shooting Tony. So the way they got around it was having the car, you have the call out for Tony, and then you cut back to the wide of Tony being gunned down at the steps. It ends up setting the tone for how we would film and execute these shots of gangster killings and gangland killings. That actually ends up being authentic on accident. Because the bottom line is is that with these particular crimes, like a lot of these shootouts would end up happening so that nobody could be pinched or, you know, named or pointed out on a witness by a witness. So the their intention to not show uh Robinson in it ended up proving to be an authentic shot on accident, which is great because some of the best shots in a Godfather movie or a Scorsese movie are killings from afar because they are beautifully and, you know, d- d- seedily stra- staged to look brutal. Yeah. Um, and we get that within the first big example of the genre. Um, but as said, it, this all leads to this banquet scene where Eddie ha- or Rico has become a media whore and. This is where the Capone comparison gets really levied in here because Capone was a big show off Um, talking his shooting his mouth off to the papers. Basically, he he never had any uh, predilection that he would ever be brought down. He was too powerful. There was no way they could trace things to him. You know, he you know, I mean. And he's just a modest guy, guys. He doesn't make a lot of money at all. That's why he doesn't really report his taxes. But I don't think those things are gonna ever, you know, fall back on him. He's gonna be just fine, right? Anyway, (laughs) he was only Uh, as guilty as his customers. Yes, yes, you know (laughs) exactly. Well, and also he got really, really tough with a guy when trying to explain baseball once. I I remember (laughs) that very well. God, that's that's my that's one of my favorite fucking. That is one of my favorite fucking scenes in The Untouchables because of De Niro. It has nothing to do with Capone. It has everything to do with De Niro just shooting off his mouth going, like, baseball! I love baseball! And also that overhead shot of after he's hit him with the bat and the blood's spilling on the table. It's it's an insane shot. Um, But, um... uh, So, yeah, he gets his picture taken by the press and Pete Montana points out, uh, dude, you shouldn't do that. (laughs) Like, you're giving yourself way too much publicity. This is going to come back on you. And if that wasn't enough, Flaherty then comes in and interrupts the party, observes his watch and says, one of these days we're going to get you. K, bye. <laughs> 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 it's, it- he is very good at pointing out, we're going to get you wink (laughs) or we're gonna get you but we don't have anything right now so i'm just i guess i'm coming here to talk to you i don't know like (laughs) like it's very interesting how flarity follows him throughout we don't really see that happen much in a gangster movie anymore where the cops would actively interact with them like most times you'd see the gangsters actually like fucking with them as they're trailing them in a car or something like that um So we and Scorsese ends up being the best at a lot of that because especially in Goodfellas when you have, you know them like going like do you guys want anything to eat (laughs) like or uh the um uh Karen letting the cops in nicely while they do another search because this is like the fifteenth time they've searched her house, (laughs) um so we uh, we also we we also get as things go on Rico. Uh, is messing around with the territory of little Arnie and little Arnie does try to take him out. And uh, in one of the shots where he does try to take him out, it's, I think it's one of the most iconic shots in this film is Rico's walking down the street and the gun uh, clips him um, after g- mowing through a shop window. <laughs> and, it- and it's a, it's a kind of, Yeah. There's, I mean, every gangster film has a disrespect for for small businesses, guys. Like, you think COVID was bad? Gangsterism it was just, was as, just bad. as bad.
4: COVID <laughs> is the gangster of, of uh, viruses.
2: Yeah. I, you know, now I want to look in a microscope and see if the COVID nineteen virus chomps on a cigar and wears a bowler hat. Looks, <laughs> has
4: a bit of a snarl to him.
2: Nah, I'm gonna ruin the economy. See. <laughs>
0: One of the things I I would love to go back to, though, is when, um, speaking of shooting, the shooting on the church steps. Um, so there's a weird yes. thing with gangster movies, um, which often gets overlooked, and it's the tie to religion. Um, and what I mean by that is yes. gangsters, you know, they're either, if, if you go with a the cliche, they're Italian, they're all Roman Catholic. Um, even in Goodfellas, there's the whole thing about him having to be half-Jewish. Um religion is very important to the gangster movie and one of the reasons that studios did that because uh, you got to remember at the uh, at, when they were making these movies they began and ended with um declarations by the film studio going we are not saying these are good people these are bad people you're about to watch and so religion gets tied in because it shows them as a threat to you know the american way of life which is you know church and apple pie and so that that's why one of the one of the reasons that shot is so powerful is because it's like you literally just gunned a man down on the steps of a church.
2: Yes, you're desecrating a religious site. There, the and the I would uh, if I can add on to it a little bit. The as the genre has progressed, especially from these early beginnings, where they are. Very much working to indicate... I mean, because, yes, you do get the... You not only get the disclaimer at the top of the film here uh, on... Um, uh in the public in the public enemy particular, uh, in the 1954, uh, re-release, they issued a new forward where they doubled down going like, we are not trying to make criminals here. (laughs) Um,
0: We're just trying to make money off of criminals. If
2: the, if the, if the titles, uh, on the DVD were correct, it would say the cover your ass title card because that's basically (laughs) what it is. um, And uh, but you're right, like the the intertwined with religion, because religion is also a very heavy, a very heavy influence in American life at this point. Not just, not just from the amount of prevalence it has in our society then, but also like immigrants coming over from other countries, they still held on to their religions, whether it's Roman Catholicism, Judaism, um, you know, Episcopalian. These are things that all come. Over the boat as well, which is, you know, one of the reasons why America has a great melting pot mentality is because a bunch of different viewpoints are present and you get to see the the passion for all of them, especially in these eras. Um, they have, I would argue that the gangster has a morality tied into religion just as heavily as the filmmakers going like, look, we want to establish these guys are terrible. There's always a bit of a morality that the gangster feels to adhere to religion even as they are murdering people in cold blood for the sake of money. Like, that is, I mean, The Godfather really, really hits that on the nose. I mean, I, I Godfather Part Three is the biggest one of that. But even in the first two, you see a lot of that influence. Um, Martin Scorsese, from the start of his career, intertwined faith with gangsters or street thugs or any kind of CD character to lay into the elements of faith in there because that's the thing he's interested in. Who's knocking at my door has a lot to do with religion, as does Mean Streets in its own way. Um, uh, but, like, you know, and then Goodfellas has a lot of that kind of element into it. Irishman certainly has a shit ton of it. Um, and I do find it interesting that one of the things as they're doing this also, they're also having to concede to different parts of religion because of language, because of expressions or actions. Um, Obviously, this is an era where we're dealing with the Catholic legions of decency on top of local and regional state censor boards. So they have to, making one of these films, even in a pre-code era, was still a touch-and-go operation for Warner Brothers. Yeah, Um, And that church shootout, is still very brutal. Again, we were talking about like, this film doesn't hold up as much as, say, A Public Enemy does from a lot of angles. But again, Mervyn Leroy has these small moments of brilliance that are really pushing through, and the reason why you still get to them. Um, I mean, like, again, I, I'll go, I'll hop back over to the scene with Rico getting shot. You know, a lot of clip shows, a lot of retrospective documentaries. What do you see? You see that clip of Edward G. Robinson being shot and going, fine shot you are, um, which is, again, doubling down on his hubris, just going like, I am untouchable. I cannot be brought down, not by anybody's bullet. Um, And, again, as we watch this ego blow up to a massive proportion, um, it ends up becoming his... The, the thing that will take him down because, I mean, we'll, we'll we'll push ahead to... Rico gets to the top. He, like, or as as high as you can possibly get without overcoming Big Boy. And he ends up losing it all because of this fucker who just wants to dance.
4: <laughs> <laughs> can, I, can I go back real quick on the point about religion? I think one of the things I found interesting about these 1930s films is that oftentimes the gangsters believed they were gods and so they thought that they were high enough that they could shoot and kill someone on the steps of the church because their church was in the seedy back room with a cigar in their mouths and talking about what the next war plan was Um, and so they didn't really have much respect towards the traditional American religions but then as we get further into the history of gangster films what you what you start to see especially like in godfather is the manipulation of religion that already exists in its current form i think that's fascinating i mean just i think scorsese does that the most is like this is catholicism but we're going to use the uh auspices of catholicism to do our business
2: yeah <laughs> yeah look i'm not i'm not sticking a finger at the catholic church i wanted to be an altar boy and a priest but but at the same time yeah but yeah you know (laughs) um but and you're right and, and you they the amount of power that they are able to obtain in any film or in real life does become that point of like interest and concern to a bystander to the point where one of the things that I talked about in the intro up front is that, like we are given empathy for the gangster in these two films that we're discussing. It's a trait that doesn't exist prior to these movies. Like it's all because of sound and charisma coming from those two actors that you you do not condone you you do not you do not condone their actions, but you're you're you aren't absolutely condemning them either. we have we have to keep in mind, I think with anything, and I, and I know you guys are aware of this because you guys do a, 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 a podcast on alcohol. Um, there was a thing called prohibition and, uh, <laughs> pro- yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean like, look, I, I, I don't drink anymore, but prohibition's a dumb idea. I don't think people shouldn't be allowed
0: to drink. Just <laughs> Well, you got to remember prohibition came in like two years after the Spanish flu pandemic. And yeah. thinking about Uh-oh. how we are all right now, we're all going to uh-huh. still need a few drinks in a couple of years after this COVID mess. So uh-huh.
2: what were they God. thinking? Now,
0: I don't know.
2: I, I you know, we, we're coming off of that. We're coming out the, the the flu epidemic. We're also coming, well, a lot of it has world to do world with world coming world. out of World War One. Yeah. World War One World War is a big reason why the um, uh the temperance movement was able to flourish because there's this huge emphasis on no violence, no violence in the home, no violence out there, no violence anywhere, um, the, the sanctity of the home. And this is where temperance is able to slide in. And, you know, I, I mean, it's a cliche to say this really right now in this day and age, but watch Boardwalk Empire to understand a lot of this, too. Like, it's a fictional story based around the real auspices of what was going on at that time. Um, and, also, and also it's a wonderful show that ended too quickly. Um, but I would say that, like, the within a little confluence of all of this, like, the, the economic disparity that would then follow in 1929 as Prohibition is still in effect, Americans are becoming disillusioned not just with their government but also with their heroes. And these people are seen as heroes, as Robin Hood figures of their era, Dillinger especially, Bonnie and Clyde especially. I don't, I, I, can't imagine that Capone didn't have his ardent supporters, uh, even as people were reading about him in the press and all the things he was clearly doing. There was an element where American society is like, well, he's making it happen, and the the American dream didn't work for me, and this is what I'm going to... That, maybe that's a path to follow, which is why Warner Brothers had to be careful with the way they portrayed these gangsters especially when it comes to the endings of these movies. Yeah. Um, And because once he gets to the top, he is the thing that is going to bring Rico down is his humanity. It's not going to be anything of his grab for power or his ego. It's going to be the fact that Joe has, despite the fact that Joe has tipped him off prior to save his life, he has still not been an active part of Rico's life. And that makes Rico pissy. Um, like it's it's like my friend my best friend is ghosting me. What the hell? No, like, like you know, like he won't respond no, to my texts. I don't text. understand
4: it. That's it. I'm gonna go confront him. See?
2: <laughs> See he he keeps he keeps looking at my Insta story, but he never wants to talk. I don't understand
4: it. <laughs> what the what hell? Are you doing with this woman all the time. He, he's liking <laughs> my pictures at
2: three in the morning. Oh my god! Thank you, Tyler, for bringing up the woman because we got to talk about here. Farrell. Linda Farrell. We're going to talk about Glenda Farrell. We're also going to talk about homosexual subtext. Hooray! Uh,
0: Would we call it a subtext? I would call it pretty damn on the nose.
2: Oh, yes, it is. It is, Andrew. It is very much in the nose. Little Caesar and Little Joe um, have a lot of sexual tension. It's mostly coming off of Rico's end. Um, You can tell in the performance, even though... I would imagine that Mervin Leroy is not directly. Do- I don't think he's like Hitchcock where he's explicitly like, look, do this shit. It's, it, it's not going to work for people today. Nobody's going to notice it. But years later, people are going to call me a progressive filmmaker. Okay. This is Mervin <laughs> Leroy just flat out, uh, you know, like presenting it as is and letting Eddie Robinson do the performance that he gives the humanity that he has for Joe and the uh, acknowledgement of Joe as a person in his life becomes warm it becomes tender whether that's because it was from days when they were still running schemes before he became a dancer or if it is the actual subtext that we were discussing where Rico is in love with Joe and he cannot have Joe because woman so the uh, it, it's it's very interesting how the the way it's portrayed here. Is portrayed that like a lot of these people who rise to power are, are closeted or hiding their actual humanity and acting tough, but in the end they're all, you know, they're all uh, soft enough to be taken down. The thing that takes down Rico in the case of this film is he can't kill Joe. Yeah. Joe knows too much. He needs to kill him. He doesn't do it. He gets away instead. He lets them live, and that's the biggest mistake that Rico makes. If you if you're talking like. I mean obviously, you know, for the story we end up getting the morally correct ending, but yeah, if you if you want your enterprise to continue, unfortunately you may have to shoot your secret crush. I don't <laughs> you know, like as brutal as that sounds and I'm not condoning that in real life. The
0: great thing know. about this performance though. And I mean, you you can make the argument that that they're, they're tying homosexuality to uh this bad person, he's a criminal. Um but the performance doesn't register as a it it's not a cheap performance of someone who is a closeted homosexual. Yeah. It is a very respectful especially for the time performance of a guy who is clearly in love with his best friend and it's yeah. never played yeah. for laughs or anything like that.
2: Here's something that uh, here's something to bring up because we are getting near the end of Little Caesar but this is an important thing to bring up especially as we get into public enemy too. It's interesting how these interpretations of characters with these emotional issues that clearly today we would identify as you know like confronting your own sexuality, understanding your sexuality, finding yourself and uh topics that topics that smarter people are able to eloquate on than I am but I will point out that a lot of actors of this era are as respectful as they can possibly be. There's very few instances that I see where they are outwardly doing it to offend. Yeah. They end up doing it because the character calls for it or they are given a, they are given a direction to work around it in a way that doesn't implicate anything directly. I think like Joe Cairo in the Maltese Falcon, that's what the character is. But, We are able to read it as an audience in the 40s a different way. He's just a very uh, eccentric fella, is what you would probably call him. Now we look at Joel Cairo. He is clearly, there is a homosexual character on screen right there being played by Peter Lorre. And... I don't think that John Houston is incredibly disrespectful because it doesn't it's almost like it doesn't really cross his mind. He's just kinda of like, no, no, no. He's just he's the guy that's gonna make Bogart's life difficult, along with the fat man and the, <laughs> the one who doesn't talk, and then the and the one who used to be an aging silent star. That that you know, just shoot this fucking thing. I wanna go to war. Um but you know, that the there's not a lot of disrespect for it. When you do see the disrespect, it is on the nose and you point it out clearly. It's 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 uh it's interesting it
0: does <laughs> the tailor in is... um public enemy oh yes, yes. sir yes yes
2: oh, we're getting to yes. 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 We're talk that. yes sure. we'll, <laughs> we'll 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 get to it because you could also claim that as like posh gentleman of feet but it's there um it's but it here's the th- here's the thing on that t- on that subject to wrap up that subject on the subtext wr burnett um, who wrote the novel, when he saw the film, he was not particularly happy at the emphasis on homosexuality. He he was apparently not a big fan of that. He was also not a big fan of there being very few Italian-Americans in the movie itself. It is interesting to point out that two of the biggest gangsters to come out of the screen one of them is supposed to be an Italian American. He's played by a Jewish person and in public enemy, you know, Cagney is obviously not Italian. Like that is a very clear (laughs) statement to make. Wait, what? Um... (laughs) Oh yeah. Tyler, Tyler, (laughs) Tyler. I I hate to tell you, um, um, Cagney was part of the Irish Mafia in Hollywood. He wasn't part oh, of the yeah. Italian Mafia. But
0: was yeah. fluent in Yiddish. Yeah. I,
2: I, I've got news for you. Spencer Tracy and Pat O'Brien aren't Italian either. <laughs> what? Um, <yeah.
0: laughs> Look, nor How was James Kahn. Stories? Hold on, I'll be right back. <laughs> James One Kahn the in The Godfather is Jewish. <laughs>
2: what? <laughs> oh, wait, now you're blowing my mind. <laughs> Damn, it. Damn it. I based my entire life on the idea that James Kahn was Italian. <laughs>
0: Just imagine Dito looking at all his kids going. There's something different about that one. Uh,
2: I th- I guess you're gonna t- I, I I mean look I guess you're next next you're gonna tell me that Robert De Niro isn't Irish. But you know I I, I <laughs> I'm just gonna make a poster now of James Conn that says not Italian. <laughs> <laughs> him smiling. it'll be that it'll be that picture of him in eye anxiety with his boxing gloves on
0: <laughs> just, <laughs> i just love it though it's like you got the most italian movie ever made outside of italy and james khan is the older brother no, james yeah. khan's like no, hey
4: what, what's up guys <laughs> hey, how you doing you like Cole, spaghetti Cole
2: Coppola is just like look he just looks intimidating I don't care I'm going to be making wine in 20 years so it doesn't (laughs) matter in the long screen of things it doesn't matter guys Francis Ford Coppola Um, but yeah no Burnett didn't like that he didn't like the homosexuality or the lack of Italian Americans but he did enjoy Edward G. Robinson's performance in this film Um, and we're getting toward the end here Rico's downfall is huge. Like it's like a, it's like bigger as it's almost like it reflects the impact of the stock market crash itself in 1929, that black, that black Tuesday when everything went to shit, like he is suddenly in, you know, beds, 15 cents hobo land. He is, he, he is in the gutter. He hears other hobos talking shit about little Caesar, not knowing that little Caesar's in the room. He loses it. He gets on the phone to call Flaherty there is an in the original script for Little Caesar. There was a different way in which he gave his location away uh, for uh, the uh, for the climax that we get. The uh, and this was courtesy of the commentary with Richard B. Jewell um, from the Warner Brothers discs that it was released. He says in the uh, in the original script, uh, Rico would hear the bums talking about him. And he would go to the police station and demand to see Flaherty instead of calling him. Uh, There was a reporter and an officer on duty there, and they don't believe that he's Rico because of how shabby he looks. They laugh at him and then kick him out of the police station. Before Rico would leave, he would give one of his rings to the officer on duty and say, give that to Flaherty, then you'll know that I'm telling the truth. And then that's how Flaherty knows to go after Rico. It's an interesting... Way to get uh, Rico's hubris back on screen once more of like how he can't uh, help, but he needs to be acknowledged and admired even if it's in the gutter. Uh, I think that this version is way better that we get where he gets on the phone, he calls Flaherty and he says another one of those classic clip quotes which is just, this is Rico speaking, R-I-C-O, little Caesar, that's who, um, guy, audience, did you understand? I'm Rico, R-I-C-O, <laughs> Little Caesar, here, me. And then he just took a picture, you know, and it says Little Caesar at the top. Um, But he just basically lays into Flaherty about, like, I, I get it. I know you're trying to trick me by putting all those stories in the paper about how I'm washed up. And, you know, Rico's so drunk at this point <laughs> that he he's literally doing what Flaherty wants him to do. <laughs> <I'm> so... <laughs> so so maybe Flaherty was smarter than we gave him credit for because he did he did know exactly how to entrap <laughs> Rico <laughs> and to be like yeah it, it's kind of like what we're dealing with with a certain leader in power you know like if you if you make fun of him long enough <laughs> in the in the open eventually he'll start fucking crumbling <laughs> like, <laughs> and going berserk or bananas um, but in this particular case Flaherty's like I told you we'd get him hey, Marge, let's, let's go, go for-, for frosty chocolate milkshakes after we catch Rico. Um-
0: and everyone's like, he's talking in <laughs> his sleep again. It's weird. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: Guys, he's going into Mike berbiglia mode again. Uh, we got to just, what uh, he's a guy, he'll make a movie uh, in the 2000s. Just wait, you'll see. Anyway, yeah, they track him down, and we get a really good shootout. I will say, I like the shootout a lot. It's a, a
0: great lot. shootout.
2: It's a great shootout. We have Rico behind a huge advertising board of Joe and Olga. <laughs> so, Joe got to dance. <laughs> I love
4: that some, some, uh, symmetry. It's just beautiful.
2: <laughs> it would have been great if Little Caesar had shot Joe, the sign of Joe, and go, Dance for me now, huh? <laughs> like, <laughs> and then he just starts singing Dance Monkey, oddly enough. Um, but he gets behind the sign, Uh, Flaherty says my favorite line that he'll ever deliver, um, because it's, it's delivered weirdly, but it's fine because it sets up this great scene. He goes, this is your last chance, Rico. Are you coming out or what? Like (laughs) his delivery is so weird but he's doing fine. It's just that the delivery feel it's the one thing where I'm just like, this is dated. Um, but obviously Rico's going to be like, never, never, uh, gangster's paradise. let ride and die. And they shoot through that fucking sign with that Tommy gun in a line and mow him down from behind. And they go over to him. They look over him. They, they, they're going to try to put the cuffs on him, but, I mean, Flaherty can even see, like, Rico's dead. Yeah. Like, he's dead. And we get the line, Mother of Mercy, is this the end of Rico? (laughs) Um, And the original line for the film and in the novel was, Mother of God, is this the end of Rico? And the reason, again, we'll go back to religion, the reason why that line was changed more than likely was because we don't want to offend the, the Catholics. Because they will... Ride our ass yeah. into the ground, and you know, like, and the studio heads of this era had a lot of reason to be fearful of the Catholic Legioncy groups and Catholicism in general, because I mean, the primary amount of studio heads at this time are Jewish immigrants. They are on a on a uh, on on a tight microscope by government leaders and you know anti Semitic dickheads. Uh, at this time, just because of their religion, this would become even worse up in, in within the rise of you know nationalism in Germany and also the amount of stuff that would happen prior to Pearl Harbor's bombing before any scrutiny on them was laid over in the in within the scope of this war. So like they have the reason to be afraid of these decency groups. so they change this line. Um, there's rumors that the the scene was shot with mother of God is this the end of Rico and that prints were sent out and released with that line intact. But then Warner brothers got nervous and changed it and sent out the new prints with that line change. So there's no, there's no film record of it. We don't have footage of it. So it's very much a like, well, did it happen? Did it happen? Did it not happen? Like, who knows? What we do know is, is that the movie ends on a shot of Joe Masara's billboard. Cause obviously that was the point of this whole movie was Sometimes people just want to dance. and <laughs> The moral of Little Caesar. And
4: Sometimes th- they're just going to dance. The original th- the safety war- dance. The inspiration <laughs> for the song safety oh dance.
2: Oh my god. I- I'm going to take the clip of that movie now and put safety dance in the end credits. <laughs> <laughs> is this the end of Rico? We can dance. We can dance. We can dance. Everybody look at your hands. <laughs> Uh, but that's the end of Little Caesar. Uh, the The film has a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes as of now, based on 24 contemporary reviews. Um, there was an Academy Award nomination for this film for Adapted Screenplay, did not win. Um, Little, Little Caesar brings Edward G. Robinson to prominence. He becomes a major star because of this. Uh, this is in the National Film Registry. Uh, it was added in 2000. Uh, it's all over AFI. Uh, Whether it's 100 Years, 100 Movies, it was nominated in both 98 and 07, um, nominated for 100 Thrills, uh, got number 38 villain in Heroes and Villains, um, 100 movie quotes, Mother of Mercy is this the end of Rico, is number 73 in the top movie quotes of all time, and AFI's top 10 number 9 gangster film of all time. The legacy of this film is, um, is still indelible in spite of the fact that of all the gangster films, it might be the one that holds up the least, and and it consequently it might part of that might be because it had to create everything, so everything else was able to add on to it. Yeah. Um. So, but like, again, I will, I will, I will end Little Caesar on the note that there are moments of brilliance in this movie, mainly from Edward G. Robinson, but also the amount that. Uh, Mervyn Leroy does have moments of cinematic brilliance with certain shots that he chooses to use that end up becoming gangster mainstays like that shot again that shot where we're hearing everybody's name and introducing them that's a shot that you see in almost every gangster movie you see coming out of the 70s 80s 90s and 2000s so um, but this movie was released in January of 1931 and Literally in April, so three months later, on April 23rd, 1931, the world got a taste of Tom Powers in The Public Enemy. Now, I imagine this is the one that we all had a lot of fun rewatching because it is is—it is still a fucking masterpiece. Oh, it's wonderful. Like it not, it's so good. It does not age in the slightest. This film... Uh, this is based on a book called Beer and Blood by John Bright and Kubik Glassman. Glassman and Bright would end up becoming major screenwriters uh, for Warner Brothers. Um, they um, would end up do, working on things like The Crowd Roars, uh, Handy Andy. Uh, this is my affair. Uh, Woman Wanted, Jealousy, Bolero. They wrote a. They actually wrote a ton for Cagney in his earlier films because they also wrote the movie Smart Money, which has Eddie and Cagney in their only film together. Blonde Crazy, Taxi. Um, so th- th- these guys ran the gamut, but their original thing was they wrote this book that was never published called Beer and Blood, and it was based on actual people um, and ha- and their own witnessing of some of Al Capone's murderous gang rivals in Chicago. Um, the, the story goes is that uh, there's a couple different ways in which the story of this uh, gets... Gets bandied about one version is that Zanuck bought the rights to the novel and assigned William Wellman to direct the film another version as well as William Wellman tells it is that he was given this book by Kubik and Glassman and he read it and then he went up to um, uh, he went up to Jack Warner or to Daryl F. Zanuck one of the two. And said, like, you've got to make this movie. And they went, but we just made Little Caesar. And he goes, like, well, you still need to make this fucking movie. Well, why should we do that, Willie? And he goes, because I'm going to make it the toughest of them all. And William Wellman didn't fucking lie. William Wellman had enough evidence in his life prior to becoming a director to definitely double down on the statement like, look, Daryl, we're going to make this fucking movie. Do you understand? I am... William Goddamn Wellman, I directed Wings. I've been an actual fighter pilot. I've I've lived life. You, I I know how to make tough. Fuck you, like Little Caesar. Bullshit. Public Enemy will be the best, and he's not wrong, because the Public Enemy is, I think, as Little Caesar is the foundation. Little uh, Public Enemy is honestly the film that I think gets referenced the most when it comes to any gangster movie going forward. Like it, there's the thing that gets replicated with little Caesar is the performance of Robinson, whether through imitation or just character tropes public enemy is where the visual style of the gangster movie becomes a reality in this film. Um, and I would imagine, I'd imagine when you, I, I, I would ask you this before we dive into it, how would you sell the public enemy to somebody? Cause my argument would be like, you are going to watch a very brutal movie from an era you wouldn't expect that's that would be my pitch to them
0: yeah i mean cuz if you compare if you compare like the even the two characters little caesar is very mo- i mean they are both morality plays but little caesar is really set up to be that morality play and you have this character rico we know he's a bad guy we're going to um you know show you at every turn he's a bad guy you flip over to Cagney, even just ignoring the performance, but the the writing of the character, he's likable. He's charming. He, uh, you know, he is extremely tough and very real with that toughness. And I, I would say this movie feels a lot less staged than Little Caesar.
2: And I think a lot of that has to do with the way the camera moves in this yes. movie. This camera moves like a Scorsese camera. I, it's, I mean, you know, and I mean, it'd be easy to joke about this, but the the reality is, is that Scorsese does not apologize for his influences. He puts them on a high pedestal, and in in fun fact, it is illegal for any documentary about the Golden Age of Hollywood <laughs> to be made without <laughs> Scorsese being interviewed. If you do it, you're fucked, um, because he'll find you. I thought. I watched the Alice B. Guy Blachet documentary and I thought like, wow, it's interesting. Like this, this story I'd never heard of before. It does feel like it's missing something. And then they showed a clip of Martin Scorsese talking about Alice Guy at a dinner. And I'm like, oh, that's how they got him in. Got it. Gotcha. Okay, <laughs> okay, okay. Okay. The law has still been upheld in this wonderful documentary. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, and this uh, is to
0: me, this is a total side note, but this is the difference to me between Scorsese and Tarantino, who... Does a lot of the same tricks of of Scorsese of stealing shots. Is Tarantino, um, Scorsese admits it. Like, Scorsese is like, Yeah, so if you watch this movie over here, I totally stole all of that. Whereas Tarantino just feels like, Yeah, I'm a genius. No.
2: <laughs> Scorsese's just like, Look, 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 look. As far back as I can remember, I always wanted
0: to steal shots from Lily and and then I asked just Close. <laughs> and, and that's my obligatory Tarantino <laughs> rant over
2: <laughs> yeah yeah no I mean and I'm a I'm a Tarantino lover I, I Jackie Brown's my favorite film of all time but uh, yes he has definitely he'll he'll acknowledge his influences but I think that Scorsese gets more detailed like Scorsese goes into diatribes like I'm amazed he has a starting
4: angle, and I had it slinging down because of this film. <laughs> I was- well, and, and the Scorsese's
0: not just stealing shots; he's stealing lighting. Yeah, exactly.
4: So I, I had know. the bulb. I had five bulbs in my uh, lighting. <laughs> here <and> I
2: <laughs> I, they tried to put a six bulb in, and I said, "No, six is too much. Too much. Too much. Get it out of there. Get it out of there." They Get didn't out. have six in Get the thirties. Wars not, not. enough. The OU- five is just right. The OU- Come you- on. Yeah. Yeah. Leo, you've got enough light on you. you're fucking fine. Shoot it. <laughs> <laughs> Marvel can kiss my ass. <laughs> um, but yes yes, he's stealing lighting shots. He's stealing he's stealing uh, cinematography angles. he's stealing characterizations. He is and and when we say stealing. You know the the obvious thing is is that great artists steal, borrow. and that's true. Because Mar Chris he he's a or borrow. Yes, he is. He is a great artist. He does that, but it all starts obviously with William Wellman's "The Public Enemy," or as it's known in Andrew's land, "Enemies of the Public." Is that <laughs> right? <laughs> yes, in the UK, in the UK. Uh, this is according to Wikipedia. So again, <laughs> keep in mind, this source article, it comes from Variety in 1931 it calls the UK is calling this enemies of the public. <laughs> now correct me if I'm wrong, Andrew, we've talked about this. Your country did not like these movies, <laughs> let alone the horror films that were coming out of the era either. So yeah, this might have been-, been the first step for them to go, no, 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 not, not going to do this again at all. Uh, Rated H, Rated G for gangster. (laughs) uh, I think
0: think there's a thing, I I think there's a thing of like, um, you know, it probably comes down a little bit to class. um, Because we enjoyed a good murder. We love murder in Britain, (laughs) but it has to be like solved by a little old lady in a country estate. You can't have just murder in the street like commoners.
4: Anarchy at that point. We we all know that Brits love law and order.
0: We do.
2: Yeah. Yes. We. You. You. You do. You know. uh, It also helps if you have somebody who invented the film industry. Then. then. I'm sorry, little hitch had a little ego coming on there. He sits by the board, um, but, but, uh, but, uh, anyway, the enemies of the public or the public enemy or public enemy. Number one, <laughs> um, nine, one, one is a joke in your town guys. Um, this film directed by William Wellman produced by Daryl F. Zanuck, uh, written by Kubik Glassman and John Bright screenplay by Harvey F. Few. Um, and based upon Beer and Blood by Brighton Glassman, starring James Cagney, Gene Harlow, Edward Woods, Joan Blondell, Donald Cook, Leslie, Felt, Leslie Fenton, Beryl Mercer, the great Beryl Mercer, uh, Robert Emmett O'Connor, May Clark, who's uncredited, unfortunately, and Murray Kinnell, as Putty Nose. Uh, yeah, this is a stacked cast. This is a stacked cast full of classic actors. Um, I think that to the, the, when we should talk about Cagney a little bit, because up until the public enemy, he had primarily worked on stage. He was brought over to be in films. He ended up becoming the breakout star of a film with George Arliss called Brewster's millions. And the, uh, the, 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 the way he gets the role of Tom powers is interesting because originally Edward woods was not only set to play Tom powers, but he was borrowed from another studio to do this. Mm-hmm. So he at there was a, there was a stake in him being the star of this movie. And the, the, the legend goes that Edward woods um, was playing Tom in, for the first couple of days of shooting. Wellman looked at the dailies then he ran into uh, the offices at Warner Brothers and said, "We gotta fucking switch him. <laughs> like, Wood Wood is literally acting like Wood. We need Cagney. He's got presence. He's got energy. So even though it would have possibly been a gamble because Edward Woods had a was a little more established, was borrowed from another studio, th- to the credit of Jack Warner and Daniel F. Zandik, they switch those characters." Cagney becomes Tom Powers. Edward Woods becomes Matt Doyle. Um, And I'll say that it's for the better, obviously, because Cagney was able to bring a lot of real-life experience, his own dealings with a tough neighborhood, and also his movement in dance. And it's not a joke. We were talking earlier about how he was trained as a dancer. The movement that Cagney gives in this film. And then in every gangster film that he does onward, he has the footwork of a dancer being applied to violence. It is very, it is very insane how well it works. Like because he has those steps in him, he can move with such efficiency that he gets you to believe the character that he's in. Um, I would argue even, especially when he's drunk, he's doing a very accurate drunk. Yeah. Like it's not, super cartoonish it's it's definitely got a little bit of exaggeration but like the footwork he is making stumbling that is real um but this i mean this film ends up becoming his calling card it ends up making him even a bigger star than eddie g robinson um and unlike eddie Cagney was able to expand outward, primarily because he would get into fights with Jack Warner over contracts and then just leave, go back to New York until Jack Warner was like, Fine, I'll acquiesce. And Jamie Cagney was like, Cool, whatever, dog. (laughs) And, you know, and and he kept doing this up to the point where, you know, he gets something like Yankee Doodle Dandy, which wins him an Oscar for playing George M. Cohan, which is like the furthest thing from what we're about to discuss. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, and also we've got. Uh, we've got May Clark and Jean Harlow Two. Uh, May. Clark's not a big name today, uh part, unless you are familiar with a movie called Frankenstein from 1931, where she plays Elizabeth. And, uh, but she, she had an interesting career trajectory that I honestly found very fascinating. And I'd like to do more side research on because I, I am in love with this woman. Uh, like she is, I think she, she has broken into my top five crushes of old time. Hollywood hands down. But she's in this film, she's in a lot of other movies with Cagney, including The Lady Killer, where she gets dragged by the hair across a room. Um, But she would would then end up becoming more of a supporting player in the 40s and then finally becoming mostly an uncredited actress by the end of the Golden Age of Hollywood. So it's a very interesting downward slope, and I don't know the exact reasons for it, so that's why I want to look more into it. But in Public Enemy, she's in one of the most infamous scenes of the movie itself that we'll talk about. Uh, This film was made for a budget of $151,000. It it ends up changing the landscape of the gangster even further than Little Caesar does. Um, I think at this point we talk about the movie itself. We open up with the score of the film, which as Scorsese will point out in the -the behind-the-scenes featurettes, you know, I I realized it's not a score. It's all (laughs) source music. It's It's all source music. All of it. You fucking hear me? That's where I took the idea from. Um, you do a good yeah, score, Sazy. <laughs> you got a great score, <laughs> yeah, Just wait, guys. I, I mean, I'm not going to make... I I can never make a film as good as him, but I'll damn sure look like him by the time I'm 80. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's the glasses. That's what's doing it. Anyway, we open up to I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles, and we're going to hear this song throughout the entire movie in different variations. This first version is much more of a, uh, a Sousa-esque... Uh, March of, uh, of of yesteryear gone by and we get the title cards. We get the cast being shown in these. I love these title cards of the actors where we get to see what they're going to look like. And right off the bat, you get Jimmy Cagney doing the jab. Yeah. And so we establish that this is going to happen. And then we start in 1909 <laughs> uh, where... Uh, the 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 world of alcohol is just fine. Nothing's happened. Every you know, carts of beer are being pulled by the horses, and all you had to worry about as a young kid was how you were gonna smuggle some of that beer and then trip people on their roller skates. That's all you had to worry about. It was a simpler time. Um, it's it's a it's a time that some people are trying to bring back. I don't think that. Thankfully, I don't think that'll ever happen. Um, and, uh, they, uh, we meet little Tom powers and little Matt Doyle. And I have this feeling that this footage was shot before the switch because the kid who looks like Tom powers seems way too tall to be Tom powers years later, unless Matt just had a growth spurt because, <laughs> It looks like the guy who's playing Tom as a kid should be the Matt Doyle character. Well, and, that, that, and that was bicycle.
0: the case. They, they shot that first and then did all mm-hmm. the, the Woods stuff. And then the director was like, it's fine. Um, but what I love about it, though, is the kid that was supposed to be Woods and is in turn then Cagney, he plays it with such swagger. like when when he's marching into the house to get like beaten by his dad for um stealing roller skates like that's Cagney Uh all the way through
2: yeah that definitely is that's that it that that's why I like I can forgive it it's like ultimately these kid actors are doing a very good job at setting up the characters we're going to see later so it doesn't matter like and I and honestly like they're really good kid actors in this movie. They are very, very good. Um, and uh, we all we also get a sense of Tom. We get the sense of the difference between Tom and Matt is that Matt is kind of a human and Tom is a monster. <laughs> yeah. And and the the question that's going to come up in this film, and I think we should kind of get it out of the way now, is like, is Tom a product of, a, of an environment or is Tom just a monster by birth? I think it's a kind of a combination of the two because it doesn't look as if... He is coming from absolutely downtrodden means. His ki- his father's obviously a cop. Their house is not too inelegant or underfurnished. It's very much a house of that era. So it tells me that, like a little bit, that yes, he does come from a very abusive family. He has a way of rebelling against that, but he doesn't. But it's not strictly driven by a poverty line, which would be a little bit more in the line of what we talked of with little Caesar where, you know, Rico's coming from the very bottom of the gutter, goes up to the top and then goes back down into a gutter. And within Tom powers, I think it's much more of a psychological gutter that he comes from to rise to the top to then fall into an actual
0: gutter. Well, I mean, it's, um, it's, it's interesting though, because if you think about it at the beginning of the movie, you see the dad and the dad beats him with a leather belt uh, as punishment. But when he's older, all you see is the mum, and the mum dotes on him. So, yeah. It, it's yeah, it is an interesting psychological question of is he just a monster? Because I mean, if you think about him as a kid, you know, he basically steals roller skates to give to a girl with the sole purpose of tripping her up. Yeah.
2: Which is like one of the most. Wait, 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 side note, real quickly. That is like one of the silliest schemes a kid could ever have. Absolutely. Like, like that's a long, that's a long con for no fucking reason. <laughs> <laughs> and,
0: and you're right. There, there's zero reason behind that prank other than he's a mean little shit that just wants to do it. Well,
4: you also that's have to awesome. talk about the brother, right? Like Mike, Mikey. Yeah. Uh, he's oh
2: like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll talk. So... We'll talk about Mike, all right. <laughs>
4: little mikey's not a shithead so what's going on tom yeah why are you being an asshole
2: the kid (laughs) the the now this is a case where the casting was correct for the kid because the kid who plays mike powers sounds exactly like donald cook (laughs) that that is unquestionable very much straight and narrow um i and that's not a dig on donald cook he's wonderful in this movie um but the thing that you're right like you you do get to see that difference between all these different kids and like and you know Matt's sister is very much uh, she ends up being like a setup for how Tom interacts with women going forward because abusive it's, uh, in a <laughs> abusive in a, yeah it's a, a, abusive play thing child like yeah, clearly clearly a fucking child who has no idea how an mature relationship works whatsoever. Yeah. Um and the result of that is we see a man who keeps getting referred to as a boy by every woman in his life. Um and it audibly and it honestly starts with Matt's sister when she goes, That's just like you, Tom Powers, you're the meanest boy in school and that then it evolves. Yeah. But, but he he gets we he gets called in to to get hit by his father. And then he, he gives a very Cagney esque line, which is how do you want him this time up or down? And we're we, we then transition. They have now been hustling in the streets. They walk into the red Oak social club and they meet putty nose and they pawn off some watches on him. And putty nose, very interesting character. He's obviously, there's a lot of reference to these black hand gangs where they would recruit children and have them do their dirty work amidst the streets. Um, you know, obviously, it's a much more sentimentalized version in something like David Copperfield. Um, you know, like, and in this movie, you don't have W. C. Fields going like, "Well, now you're gonna steal, boys, and it's gonna be wonderful." Like, no, like, no. <laughs> Putty Nose is a flat-out scumbag. <laughs> like, Murray Kennel is, is a, like, a-
0: the, the question i have like you've got this old gentleman hanging around these young boys like yeah i, I it, it's hard for for being of the modern audience is hard for me to be like yep that's totally normal
2: oh yeah yeah of course you know what are you talking about every 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 middle-aged man has a gang of children that commit crimes for him it's
4: totally fucking normal the gang of children has to pay a certain social club due in order to <laughs> hang out with
2: Yeah. <laughs> The yeah. level of well, abuse yeah, in you, this movie. Yeah, don't, don't you don't you belong to the Elks, Tyler? Isn't that something we all do in America? We join the Elks Club. That's what we do. We wear those stupid fezzes on our hats and ride around in mini cars.
4: <laughs> I guess it's that the Catholic Church and the Social Club have in common.
2: This this social club has a lot in common with the Moose Lodge and the honeymooners. Like, you know, like Ralph Cramden's there every Thursday getting his crimes committed.
4: <laughs>
2: so, but we You know they go into they go into the pawn these watches off of them. Putty Nose establishes like that he's a crook through and through because he's going to cheat these kids out of the watches that he's clearly going to hawk on the black market. But he gives them the assurance like when something big comes around, I'll come to uh, I'll I'll uh, I'll I'll come to you. And you know so he gets his hooks in them. The years go by, and uh, Matt and Tom have gotten respectable jobs but they uh, but they are also given notification by putty nose to come in for this meeting on a job and you know he said remember when i said if something good came along i'd cut you in and we already know up front that putty nose is going to cheat him. um we just don't he just doesn't realize how he's going to be cheating him because they're going to do a robbery on this fur warehouse um, that ends up becoming botched and putty nose leaves them stranded <laughs> And uh, because Tom by the way, the, one of the reasons it gets botched is because Tom in his impulsiveness shoots a stuffed bear. <laughs> like, it's one of those beautiful shots where he gets freaked out by this bear and just goes like bang, <laughs> oh god. Yeah. Uh, well he, he you know, you know, he's not gonna he's not gonna eat Timothy Treadwell this time. I got him. You know, like that's that's what it's gonna happen to be. And they get on the run. Uh, they uh, they also in the process, another gang member gets killed. They're chased by a cop. Tom and Matt kill this cop, and then they go to Putty Nose, but Putty Nose has left town. And we get one of the first isms of James Cagney in this, where he's like, "Why the no good double crossing?" Like, you know, like you know, <laughs> like that delivery that he gives. You know, like we have the line for it that he never said, which is "You dirty rat," because he never said "You dirty rat." Um, but that. Intonation and that delivery becomes infamous, much like uh, Little Caesar did with Energy. You know, you 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 have a delivery and a style that is so recognizable. Only Cagney can speak like that. Only Cagney can do it, uh, or Mel Blanc can do it too. But that's because he's the man of a thousand voices. But Cagney can do it. Only he can do it to this delivery justice. Um, and w- within within them getting uh brushed off by putty nose, they end up joining patty Orion's gang uh Patty O'Ryan tells them that he's gonna watch after him and he's you know you you could come to me in the event of a problem Meanwhile, in the home life of Tom, it's just his mother now Merle, Beryl mercer who i is this the only Beryl Mercer movie you guys have ever seen that you can like actively recall
0: yeah okay yeah, yeah I think. she
2: she is an amazing actress of the era. Her She would end up dying in 1939, but she worked throughout Hollywood playing mothers and grandmothers, and then she would end up playing Queen Elizabeth in two films the last year of her life. She was an amazing, amazing talent. She's in a movie called Supernatural with Carol Lombard where she plays um, a uh, a drunken tenant who ends up getting becoming one of the first murders. Um, but she is... She is just wonderful in this film. I, 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 I can't get enough of Beryl Mercer. I've become much more of a fan with her since I've been doing the film club um, with Secret History of Hollywood. Like There's been a couple films where she pops up where I'm just like, just this woman's perfect. But she plays Mob Powers. She becomes the quintessential Mob Mom. The boy can do no wrong. My little boy. Oh, it's isn't it funny? Like She just excuses everything she's very much like if i was going to bring a hitchcock analogy to this she's the uh the starting point for what you get with the mother of uh robert walker and strangers on a train where you know just in complete denial that your son is a monster like (laughs) you know like absolutely in denial and what's more mike powers has grown up from a boy into donald cook and he has signed up to join the army and we get this we get more insight into tom's uh uh character as you know clearly he's the irresponsible one of the family who gets off on uh being more charismatic and tr char- he gets away with it by his charm and charisma matt is the uh, matt uh, donald cook mike powers is just the straight arrow he's he doesn't put up with that chicanery he literally tells tom to you know, not be a gangster. And <laughs> Jimmy goes like, well, that's not going to fucking happen. Like, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Like, <laughs> and he's <laughs> like that with it, as that carries on the, uh, as, as Mike is off to war, prohibition kicks in. We get a beautiful montage of people clearing out the liquor stores Yeah, all across. Like, this is like, you know, if you were to say that weed became illegal again in Colorado, <laughs> the result would be pretty much this. Yeah, I, I even to the point where I would imagine they'd be carrying home ca- canisters of, of of blunt joints, <clears throat> or, or how much weight you were able to get off of a of off of a of of a ounce of weed. In baby carriages, being strolling about because they will comfort you for the rest of your life. Yeah. No, um, the
4: best scene is the guy with the flower car. Oh that yeah, pulling out flowers and just dumping all of his flowers out. I was yeah. like, "Fuck it, I don't and need this anymore." Like, <laughs> no, <wear laughs> boys, yeah,
2: boys. nobody needs pretty foliage in their life. What they need is fucking booze, guys. Like I am. The 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 montage is wonderful, and this is also where we get, uh, Patty O'Ryan basically. You know, tells them like we're not. You know, alcohol's not gonna go away. Alcohol's going for thirty. That beer's going for thirty dollars a barrel. Yeah. Like that. That they're gonna make fucking money, and uh, they one of their first jobs is this actually wonderfully shot uh, heist scene. Yes. Where they yes. hook up a gasoline truck. To, well, to get, get
4: her the out, let me just say that's, that's really <laughs> interesting after notes. If you uh, keep that in the gasoline so, truck,
0: so I'm gonna ask you, Tyler, because you know, so one of the big things about brewing is sanitation. Everything <laughs> has to be cleaned and sanitized within an inch of its life when you brew beer. I can only imagine. I don't know about you, Tyler, but I was watching like this movie, and they're filling up the gasoline truck, or they just bring this like wooden barrel hands. into into the uh, into the dining table <laughs> and taking beer off of it. And I'm like, that can only taste like crap.
4: Well, <laughs> <laughs> I was seeing like a keg on the table. I was like, that that's that probably tastes delicious, to be honest. Like a nice oak aged. Oh, milk that's true. Yeah, I'm fine with that. But do you yes. know how much air you just introduced into the beer <sighs> yeah. that's just filled into a gasoline truck? And oh, oxidize the ice.
0: crap out of it!
4: Also, you're filling. You're filling. For those of you that don't know how to pour a pint, <laughs> I would recommend yeah. not yes. watching Public Enemy because yeah. they are yeah. just pouring it straight into the glass. Oh, and it's just like oh yeah, the, ninety the
0: head, percent foam. 90% foam yeah,
2: <laughs> the head. The heads on these beers is is astounding i had i had a feeling we we watched uh, a slight case of murder with edward g robinson last week at film club and there's a lot of heady beers in that too where i'm like man he's not a really good bootlegger if he doesn't know how to pour beer yeah
4: (laughs) i'm getting really pissed off that my paint is 90 percent beer (laughs) or 90 percent head
2: Listen, the reason we're not, look, listen, the reason why we're not buying Patty Orion's beer anymore is quite frankly because it's nothing but foam. That's (laughs) all it is. It, It certainly cannot be the way I'm pouring it. After all, I am a bartender i know my alcohol um clearly you don't because i wouldn't drink your foam shit either Um, i
0: i was doing some reading about how like people brewed beer during prohibition and so there's two types of way to brew for those who want to know you got all grain and you got extract which is basically taking the sugar from the grain and put it into a syrup and um they would make hopped extract so they're putting the hops in with the malt at the at the same time, so I can't imagine this beer tasted good i'm sorry well, there's, there's, there's no there is a, there is a
2: reference in a lot of uh, documentaries about prohibition or gangsterism where you would refer to stuff as swill, yeah like it's just this is all they were able to do because. One of the Actually, one of the things about this film is interesting is that they end up getting supply from people who had a brewery. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're brewing beer down
4: at the old brewery. You think they're going to suspect it? No, it's true.
2: no, <laughs> no. the <laughs> no, no.
4: smell of malt that is coming out of the brewery that is now open.
2: No, no, Chief Clancy, I do not believe that they, they would ever think to take the beer from the old brewery that we just casually left in there. Didn't, Didn't bother. bother to break it with an axe. Anything. Of that nature, no. I think we're totally fucking fine. It's fine now. Yeah, now on to being an Irish stereotype. <laughs> right. But the the yeah the, the the amount of you know like uh, gumption to do that, like it actually does add into their their um their uh da- the element of danger they possess in their lives and their impulsiveness is like they are willing to take that kind of risk in there where you know it is established that there are guards at that. At that facility. So it's not like they're going in like nobody's watching the front door. Like it's very clear that it's a warehouse that's being guarded as a reserve. Um, but they get, they go through the job. Patty Orion recruits them to be their salesmen <laughs> or enforcers, as it's known in the mobster world. Um, and they uh, are teamed up with Samuel Nails Nathan um samuel nails nails nathan is based on sam nails morton uh who was a reputed gangster of the era as well and his fate is similar to nails nathan in this movie but we'll get to that in a bit um but yes they become the enforcers we get that lovely lovely scene where they go to one of the be- the, the speakeasies they taste the beer and Cagney spits it in his face and goes like, <laughs> the what the hell? hell is this?
4: Swell. <laughs> it's, re- it's a refined palette, to be honest. Like it's if no, you can tell but- one Bud Light from a Coors Light, that's, that's impressive. <laughs>
2: How are you? Uh, wait, I, I don't understand. Ours is gasoline. This one takes like Clorox. What are you doing? <laughs>
4: <laughs> you want to go blind? Drink our beer. Come on.
2: Listen, listen. Our beer is guaranteed that if you put it in the engine of your car, it becomes herby. So I don't, <laughs> don't want you putting, pushing your swill when our swill is 10 times more magical. Also, uh,
4: my heart just hurts watching all of that other beer being poured out right there on the bar floor.
2: Oh, my, oh, mine didn't. Right, I was like, uh, nope,
0: that does not taste good.
2: RIP beer
4: A good a good business sense for James Cagney Would be to collect that beer And then go and sell it somewhere else To another place and pretend it was their beer
2: But he's a loyal but He's a loyal Patty Orion guy He just does what he's told He's a foot soldier in this mob sir He's not going to know to fucking do that This is why Tom
4: Powers <laughs> isn't going anywhere in life
2: It's actually the difference between It's interesting it's the difference it, Because both this and Goodfellas Are about foot soldiers in the mafia or the mob in, in the public enemy, James Cagney is loyal to Patty to a fault. He yeah, doesn't yeah. try to do side deals. When you see a movie like Goodfellas, one of the things that's innovative, obviously because it's based on truth is that Scorsese shows that a lot of these guys did side deals that had nothing to do with the major head figures of the mafia, like a police or uh, like a poly or, you know, or anybody in that group, like he's doing drug deals behind Polly's back and getting Jimmy uh, Jimmy and Tommy into it. So, like, Tom is way more loyal than Henry Hill ever was. Um, and, and it's shown with that because he says, like, you're going to – a guy's going to come around in here and he's going to give you the beer and you're going to kick in the dough. If you don't, I'm going to come back in here and kick your teeth out one at a time. <laughs> like, this is ten times more vicious than Eddie G. Like, ten times more vicious. Yeah. Like, Eddie G is suave. Cagney is fucking insane. Yes. That's what he's coming off as uh, in this film. And it works. Absolutely works. Um and so we've already we're we're already seeing this rise this rise of this foot soldier in the mob. He's working his way up. He goes to um uh he goes to a club with with uh Matt and they you know, hook up with dames there, played by Joan Blondell and Mae Clark. Um, and we start to see the difference between Matt and Tom even further because Matt is a pretty measured guy. He can have a healthy relationship with somebody like Joan Blondell. Mm, um, Joan Blondell. Oh, Joan Blondell, another crush. Yes. Another, another crush. Yes. Like just just wonderful. We watched; she's wonderful in a film called Blondie Johnson that people need to check out. It's wonderful, um, but but May Clark gets the shit end of the stick when it comes to a relationship because Tom is an asshole. Um, and within within all of this, Mike Mike returns from war, suffering clearly from PTSD. At the time, we would have called this shell shocked. Um, he's getting a bunch of flowers for his welcome home. Mike is not happy when he hears that he is friends with Nails Nathan, and as he's hearing this and processing this while dealing with the traumas of war, Matt and Tom bring in, uh, bring in a barrel of beer for the center of the table. <laughs>
4: <laughs> and and, and well, this is of... to help with the traumas of war. Yeah, yeah.
2: Just, well, and and it, it's fine. And it and it plays into the, um, uh, uh, it plays into the. Uh, humor that would have been of the era because I don't find this funny today really because like, I'm kind of buying into the drama of it but this could have been a cutaway that would have been humorous to an audience of the era um, and so like when we get to the next scene at the dinner table he you know Matt is lividly staring at this barrel of beer it's why I say Donald Connor Donald Cooks, sorry, Donald Cook's really good in this movie is because he is pulling off PTSD really well
4: there's a, a lot of good active staring. Yeah. In, and <laughs> in in in
2: in, 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 unlike the staring of Flaherty and Little Caesar, the staring of Donald Cook is with purpose. It's not because he accidentally fell asleep with his eyes open. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Donald Cook, like, he stares at the beer. He gets offered the beer by Ma, and he goes like, no, I don't want any. And they get into the... they. they Tom is kind of egging him on a little bit, and he goes like, you know, you, you you know, you, you know, why, why, why are you being such a stuffed shirt? Take a drink. And, you know, he goes and goes like, you do th- you think I would have cared if it was just beer in that keg. There's no more than beer in it. There's blood of men as blood, blood of men, beer and blood. Then he just knocks that barrel over, shoves it in anger and fury. And Tom just goes like, your, your hands ain't so clean. You killed and you liked it. You didn't, t- you didn't get them medals for holding hands with them Germans. And. There's this is another reason why this movie is a step and above, because we do deal with the way that war had to factor into the gangster era, because there is this sense after World War One about like the the amount of violence that had to be committed for whatever peace and armistice we got temporarily. Um And, you know, you could. Yeah, it's not I don't think obviously we look at it today. Tom does not have an actual argument at the time you would have you would have seen this as an actual argument amongst people like, well, what's different between me murdering people to get a job done for my family than you going off to war and shooting uh, shooting other soldiers for for uh, freedom or whatever? Like somebody somebody of Tom's mentality would make the argument we're both on the same ends of a coin here. Yeah. Like, no, you're no different than I am. Now, obviously, it's flawed logic, but it's interesting that it's pointed it out here and that Tom sticks it in his face like that. It's very, very um, mature for the era, in a way that I'm not expecting it to be. Um, and a lot of that comes with the fact that it is pre-code. Um, so you're able to do these fluctuating things with your thematics. Um, but This is one of those famous scenes. We're going to get to the next one, though, because uh, Cagney gets a call from Nails. And we see uh, uh, in an intercut the difference between Matt's relationship with Joan Blondell and Tom's relationship with Kitty, played by Mae Clark. And it leads to a very infamous scene for people, which is the grapefruit scene. Um, now I'll ask you guys, had you heard of the Grapefruit scene prior to hearing of the public enemy?
4: No, actually no, I have. I'm
2: not sure I had. Okay, sure. neither did I. This apparently is an infamous scene for people of a certain era who are learning about this film because it is a brutal scene, not not by what's happening, but just like his it's an it's a double down on Tom being an insensitive prick. Yeah. And he shoves he shoves it in her face. He doesn't just throw it. He shoves it in her face, and this is actually inspired by an actual gangster who reportedly um, shoved a uh, an omelet into his girlfriend's face. Um, but the inspiration for the scene, it seems like, because it's so infamous, everybody claimed to have a part in creating it. <laughs> um, in in, uh, in the in the TCM interview uh, documentary, the men who made the movies. William Wellman's doc, he said that he added the grapefruit scene uh, because when he and his wife at the time would get into fights, she would never talk or give any expression. And since she always had a grapefruit for breakfast, he always wanted to put the grapefruit into her face just to get a reaction out of her. So she would show some emotion. He felt that this scene gave him the opportunity to rid himself of that temptation. Now, modern critic uh, Ben Mankiewicz (laughs) Has, who is also my secret father, uh, has asserted that May Clark's surprised uh, and seemingly somewhat angry reaction to the grapefruit scene was genuine and that she hadn't been told to expect it in, in the scene itself, which Clark denies this retroactively through her autobiography and said that Cagney told her that to the take that he was going to do this and she said that the only genuine surprise came later when she saw the grapefruit take of the scene appear in the final film, as she understood it, that they were shooting it as a joke to amuse the crew, which I feel like may Clark is embellishing a little bit because, or covering herself a little too much. Cause it feels like you must have known yeah. that this shot would appear in the film somehow. Um, and according to Cagney, this is, this is, this is sad. But makes sense if you're a you know jealous jerk of a man. According to Cagney, Clark's ex-husband had the grapefruit scene <laughs> timed, and would buy a ticket just before that scene went on screen. Go enjoy the scene, leave, then come back during the next show just in time to see the scene again.
0: <laughs> that's that's just sadistic. There now,
2: there is a modern day comparison to this. There is a documentary about the Fra- Friday the Thirteenth franchise where I guess. One of the actresses who has a death scene, apparently her ex-boyfriend would watch that scene over and over again and say, get him, Jason, get her, Jason. Like, oh, my God.
4: I really do actually rough. remember that story I can't remember who that is though
2: it's I think it's mad I think it's maddie in part seven uh the uh, the the quote unquote ugly duck character but anyway that yet yeah, still that's that's strange behavior but like yeah everybody seemed to claim that they made this scene willie Wellman says he created the scene Daryl F Zanuck says he created the scene you know Jack Warner claimed everything in the world so of course he claimed they created this scene so you know like that this is a but it is a very br- like brutal scene in terms of somebody being that calloused for somebody's appearance in life and whatnot. And, you know, and uh, and the reason they didn't do an omelet apparently from all stories is that an omelet looked too sloppy and not cool enough on screen. I mean, that, I guess that makes sense. I mean, the omelet could slide off, you know, like you're not, you're not talking about a grapefruit, which is a solid piece of fruit. You're talking about an omelet. It'll slip and slide wherever it wants to go. Um, when
0: he shoves the grapefruit in, in her face. And I think this goes back to him being a dancer because Cagney has an amazing sense of space um, when he interacts with people and he just does not hold back when shoving that grapefruit in like it it's so visceral and so violent um that yeah I I I don't know that there's many actors then or now that could get away with that level of reality
4: yeah it's a very vicious scene like I watched it with my wife and like both of us were like cringing and just like, Oh wow. That's really brutal for 1930s cinema.
2: Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of those things where I think that it it proved, it proves a lot that Cagney is a force to be reckoned with, but it is also an example of the Warner brothers gangster films above all else were the only ones who had the guts to be as realistic as possible. Like one of Warner brothers claims to fame was that it made films for the people made it for the lower class maybe for the people living in these urban areas where a lot of their films take place they made social pictures message pictures um socially conscious uh studio uh, driven films so they were unafraid to show the grit and grime as long as they could get away with it and avoid censorship yeah. so like this is an example of again like even if Jack Warner doesn't come up with the scene he still has the o he, he still has the good sense to be like keep it in the picture you know so like as does Willie Wellman and uh, and Daryl of and everybody at that team. So like, yeah, it is. And he does have a good sense of space that has to come from theater. You have to know where to hit your mark, how to, how to give your partner in the scene enough space to function as well. Um, so it, it, it does really lend itself as like one of those moments where you watch a master at work, just sitting down, like just sitting down, um, you know when he does it in the lady killer with um with May Clark where he drags her across the room you can you can freeze frame that like the Zapruder film and see the footwork mm-hmm. of him moving like a dancer as he you know as he drags her across the room in a way that is controlled it's not one of those instances where an actress was abused there was this was choreographed in advance um but anyway regardless this is clearly the end of Kitty's relationship okay. because Tom's about to meet Gwen Allen, played by Gene Harlow. Um, this is one of Gene Harlow's, really one of her first films outside of Hell's Angels. Um, and the uh, at the time that Gene Harlow was cast in this movie, she had not really developed a style yet. Again, Hell's Angels is her debut she's not like she's a discovery for it obviously she's a very gorgeous woman very very vibrant looking um but she hasn't developed an acting style yet and it's very clear in this movie she is kind of the weakest performance in the movie and i don't know if that's entirely her fault or not <laughs> like i can't tell anymore she's like, not really
0: given much to do she's just uh, like Plot, and that's it
2: yeah yeah exactly so like it's kind of not her fault because she doesn't have any moment to stretch her legs beyond the one scene where they're in the room together and you know Gwen Allen really really inherently represents like a big ultimate uh represents through a scene the ultimate uh definition of Tom's masculinity or where it lies because he is <laughs> he is his His interest in maintaining healthiness with women is not so much uh, as powerful as his desire to beat the living shit out of somebody or to obtain any form of power or to let his impulses drive him so, I, I have a you know, question know.
0: about that I, though because going back to going back to the little Caesar thing um where uh Rico is clearly in love with with Joe, I get the sense that You know, there's more than just admiration of the money with Nails. If you look at how Tom reacts to him, reacts to how he dresses, there's a lot of emulation. And I always wonder, is there a little bit of subtext there as well?
2: Um, If there is, it's not enough to hit it on a nose the way you do in Little Caesar. Um, I can tell you I don't get that. I get uh, hero worship out of it. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if I would get that same particular context. However, there is validity to your theory because of what Matt is, or what Tom is willing to do after he discovers that nails is dead. Um, in order to get to that point, I, w- I want to get to that point What's what's first address, um, the putty nose in the room. Oh, because, <laughs> yeah. This is my favorite death scene in the movie. Oh, it's a, it's scene, a scene that's inspired me for years. Um, it's disc- Tom is at a nightclub with, uh, with, with uh, Gwen Allen, and he comes upon Putty Nose. He still holds a grudge from when Putty Nose betrayed him. Um, actually, even Nails Nathan's kind of kind of telling him, like, telling him, well, like, don't worry, worry about it. this. <laughs> yeah, he's just like he's he's going like you you're gonna let him make a chump out of you. And from the beginning of this scene, we started in the exterior. The black cat crosses the path of Putty Nose which in the commentary for this film, the commentary guy does not bring it up, and it bothers me. Robert Sklar knows better. If you see a black cat running across the frame before Putty Nose is about to be murdered inside his house, that's symbolism at its finest. So either it's been talked about to death or he just didn't see it. Um, Either way, it's a great way to start off the scene because him and Matt confront Putty Nose at the steps of his apartment. They get him inside, He makes it very clear that Putty Nose is fucked. Uh, Putty Nose tries to calm them down by going to the piano and singing the song that he would sing with them at the club, at the Red Oak Social Club. He starts singing it. We, as the audience, see Tom grab a gun as he's singing and pulling it out. The camera pans over to Matt and pushes in as the song continues until you hear two shots and you only see Matt's reaction to the violence. Yeah. The reason why this scene fascinates me is because it is one of the best examples of how violence in early cinema works to the fullest advantage because that scene is brutal even though I don't need to see bullet holes in Putty Nose. It is so tense, so creepy. The the moment Cagney walks back in, it is audacious that he is as nonchalant as he is. And Scorsese points it out in the dock because it's not just the pan it's pushing in on Matt's reaction that's what's selling you that's what's keeping the momentum going again this film moves at a clip it does not the camera does not stop for a second in this movie um and it's it's just one of the best gangster deaths in a movie period because of the way you switch over to it so this this happens and now we will we'll get to the scene with Gwen Allen that really it's the scene that makes Gina Harlow's performance seem very odd because she has presence, but her dialogue delivery is very, very stilted. It's very, very flaherty like, um, if we want to get into the nitty gritty of it. But this scene, you know, it's clear that she's holding out on him and he's wanting to get laid because he just wants to be done with it so that he can move on to whatever. And she's basically. Implying like I'm, I'm, I'm gonna get my hooks in you, sir. Um, and she refers to him again as a boy. Again, this guy has no maturity in him whatsoever when dealing with women. So, just as they're about to really consummate, the phone ring or the door, or the doorbell rings. Doors knocked. Cagney goes to answer it, or or, or uh, Gwen goes to answer it. Person's let in, and he lets Cagney know that Nails Nathan's dead. Horse threw him off, so he's killed by a horse bucking him off the the stir uh, the the saddle, and Cagney fucking loses it internally. He gets up and he fucking rushes out the door. It's implied through the paper that Nails Nathan has a large extravagant funeral. We cut to the stables where Nails Nathan rides at. They ask where the horse is that nails through that that killed nails. They said, "Raja, he's a bad horse." I told I told Mr. Nathan not to use it. Never mind. How much is he worth? He's worth about a thousand. They give him a thousand dollars. They go to the stable that Raja is being kept in. They go inside. You hear two shots and a thump, and then they carry out the horse's cover that says Raja on it. It is. If there is any validity, which I think there is, honestly, now that Andrew brings it up, the validity of, like, is there a relationship with Nathan that Cagney kind of covets or craves, that's your evidence of it because that's what he was willing to do after Nails Nathan died on an accident with a horse. Yeah. it is. That is a very good point, Andrew, because that that makes that scene ten times more influential in terms of how Tom operates as a character. It's also a scene that... It made me realize violence against horses is very common <laughs> in gangster movies, because whether or not they're being shot in their stables or beheaded to put in the beds of people, horses do not get a good break in gangster movies. They're, I mean, you know, I, I'm surprised there's not a Mr. Ed episode that deals with this
0: issue. That's 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 how bad it. The is. horses know what they did. Okay yeah yeah they know what sure. they did well and so like going back going back to, nails had to go <laughs> but, but going back to you know it, it, whether or not cagney's character is in love with nails or not there's that earlier scene uh which we alluded to in talking uh about little caesar is he's getting uh, a tailor-made bespoke suit and it's after a big heist, and the tailor is is played for laughs, but he is obviously a uh, homosexual, very camp gentleman. Because he's like, yes. oh, did you hear about the robbery? And <laughs> it's very over the top, but the way Cagney reacts to him, it, I don't know, to me it felt like he was recognizing something about himself that he doesn't want to admit, but again, I'm viewing this through the lens of a modern audience where we're yeah. taught to like look for that at every step now.
2: Yes, but and it, well, and it's interesting. Like Cagney, coming from the theater, he he was obviously in tune with his feminine side as well as anybody. Like he, but it's just like he understands the humor. He's in tune with it. It's not like Jimmy Stewart in Rope, where he's just like Hitch. Hey, what is the deal with these two <laughs> boys? <laughs> he's like. They seem, like, really familiar with each other, and its it, it, I haven't read the play in full. I just know that I throw my beliefs under the bus at the last minute. <laughs> um, that's right. That's all, you, that's all you need to know, Jimmy. Now fucking action. Oh, um,
0: As we said earlier, Cagney began his career playing a girl he was in an all girls chorus line so he he would be very much in tune with that side of himself
2: yeah and again like he's not afraid like it's Cagney's a brave actor because he's
0: not afraid
2: to do that and and Bogart honestly has that similar braveness about him that we'll talk about in future episodes because there's when we get into the Maltese Falcon you know there's an interplay he has to do with uh, Joel Cairo that is like you have to know what you're doing here Um, but to getting back to the public enemy on this and and after Nails his horse RIP Ho- RIP Raja um uh. the uh at this time a rival gang head- headed by Schemer Burns um has um taken advantage of a lot of the disarray following Nathan's death um we get a lot of scenes of fast moving cars and bombs being thrown through windows. The things that I wanted more of in live by night that didn't, that I didn't get, but whatever. I get it. I I get it. Mr. Affleck, you made a very sincere movie. I just really (laughs) wanted action scenes like that. It's, it's not that you made a bad movie. That's just what I wanted. Anyway, I will put that rant out of the way, but so schemer burns is basically causing chaos. Patty Orion's gang is fucked. He needs to hide these kids out while he gets the things reorganized that he needs to get. So they hole up at Patty O'Ryan's place with Patty O'Ryan's girlfriend. They give them their guns and their money, and um, they are told to stay there until Patty comes back. When Patty leaves, we get a shot from below the ground of the car driving over the camera uh, to which... Such a great you shot. Know, yeah, and, and obviously Orson Welles gets a lot of credit for the shots where he dug into the floorboard to get that shot in the governor's office, in his campaign offices in Kane. You know, Orson Welles would fully admit, you know, I stole from other people and just used what was at my disposal to create a dynamic film. Here's an example. William Wellman does that shot. That shot is very much a shot you would attribute to being innovated by Kane, except it's not because it was in 1931 and not 1941. It's 10 years before Kane. So, you know, like, it, the, the mythology of where these shots get innovated is always murky because everybody seems to forget that early, early cinema is not on dynamic. It's just, it's in, it's in bits and pieces, whether it's Mervyn Leroy doing that tracking shot or Wellman doing that below the angle shot. But so uh, one of the one of Schemer Ger- Burns' guys tips them off because he sees Patty O'Ryan leaving. And in the club here, or in the in the in Patty O'Rion's house, Tom gets super drunk and gets uh <laughs> Whoa 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 Patty o- yeah. Tom gets yeah super
4: drunk because he's being fed alcohol by a very, yeah. very yeah. vicious woman.
2: <laughs> yeah, a very, very aggressive uh, aggressive woman played by. Uh, Did Mia, we a rapey Mia, woman? Yeah, Mia, Maya Marvin, Maya Marvin, who was only in really three films. She was in *The Public Enemy*, *You Said a Mouthful*, and *The Call of the Wild*. And she only, uh, uh she only appeared in those three films and then just left Hollywood. Um, but uh, she always went uncredited, which is interesting. It is
0: such a weird scene. It's
2: like I was, I was watching
0: game. when I was watching it. I'd forgotten about that scene. And just watching it, I was just like, there is zero need
2: for this. Well, it's, it's a, I think the reason it's there is another double down or triple down on Tom's relationship with women. What's interesting is that when that scene ends, in the censored versions that had to be cut for different markets... You would, she would just turn off the lights and then go off screen, and that would be it. But we get the line obviously today: "Get away from me, you're Patty Ryan's girl." Yeah, and then the scene ends. So it, that was like one of those again. The small seconds of films are taken away to get around the code and whatnot. And this scene again, you know, she's in control of the situation. She refers to him as a boy again. You know, Tom's relationships with women are not stable. He's obviously. You know, not able to, you know, like understand that this woman is taking advantage of his alcoholic state. And the next morning she playfully jabs at him about like what they did last night. And he slaps the shit out of her as a result. Um, And he goes to cool off. Matt follows him outside, which is a big no-no. They go outside where there's a coal truck that is unloading stuff and making loud noises. This has been set up before by rival gangsters as a way to establish that noise can happen. Um, because as they keep walking they hear a big loud rumble and they see it's the coal truck. They get up, they shake it off, and then all of a sudden you hear rat a tat tatat going across the concrete of this building. Matt is shot, dead in the street. Tom is Tom is clipped. But they didn't get him. They didn't get him dead. That scene is one of the most famous scenes in gangster movie history because of how, again, the violence is from very afar. Yeah. We get the impact of a guy being mowed down.
0: They use real bullets. <laughs> <laughs> Those things are clipping the building. <laughs> Have you seen the photograph of them filming that scene? Yes. Uh, so, for people who haven't seen it, uh, it's literally a trained marksman on top of a ledge with a machine gun and yeah. James Cagney standing in front of a wall and they wait for him to walk around the corner and the timing is so tight and I don't know if they cut out a few frames to to make it tighter but no sooner has he like just got around the corner the safety they are blasting holes in that wall yeah it is incredible
2: yeah it is it, it's it's amazing it's also terrifying. If we talk about like gun safety on sets, obviously has a very, very sordid history in in Hollywood. Yep. Not to, not the least of which is the stuff with the crow, um, but this is just nuts. This is insane. This is before any you know kind of organization went in and stepped in and went whoa 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 hold <laughs> on a minute.
0: OSHA hold was on. born the next day. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's right. that's right. That's right. I defined the gangster era and I created Workman's Comp. You're welcome. Um <laughs> My name's Jimmy Cagney. It's not a good Jimmy Cagney. Anyway. Gangsters um, the first socialists in America. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, they you know, they blame the socialist class the socialist class, and that's true, but you know, I, I definitely had something to do with it because if they hadn't a shot at me, I wouldn't have went to Jack Warner and said, Hey, don't fucking shoot me like that <laughs> or you gotta pay me some money. <laughs>
4: <laughs> so I want a, uh, an insurance plan that covers all my health benefits in case i get shot like that come on
2: yeah yeah also i want a 401k is that a thing that can happen i, I also <laughs> want
4: some time off i need to go see my boys
2: no oh, yes yes pto sick time you know i need all these things oh, oh i'm under contract for seven years like an indentured servant okay fuck it um But um, anyway, Tom takes out revenge in a beautifully shot scene uh, where he goes in with two guns ablazing. We see him enter the building, we hear the shots, and then we see him stumble out of that building in the rain.
4: Before we get to that shot, though, he goes to a store in which some idiot guy behind the counter. Like, hey, can you show me how uh, these bullets are loaded? Oh, great. Can I hold the gun real quick? Oh, hey, by the way, you're being robbed.
0: Stick them up. <laughs> well, I just love that the the guy doesn't get wary when he just starts pulling the bullets out of his pocket. Like I've already got bullets; don't worry about it. <laughs> like, why worry. do you have bullets and those guns? Up, I collect them. It's fine. Shut up. <laughs> don't worry. I, I I come prepared. Don't worry. I, yeah, you're gonna be
2: robbed. Oh, you didn't know that? Well, too bad. Too bad. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, but yes, yes, that happens. And then he, we get that shot in the rain that shot in the rain where he looks as menacing as he's ever looked before. Like he's, he's the devil incarnate at this point. He walks in to the, to the building. He walks out, he stumbles out. He's been shot up to pieces. He stumbles around in the rain and finally gives in and goes, I ain't so tough and falls flat on his face in the gutter. So he literally winds up in the gutter and, which, again, like the, we've talked about audaciousness on this show before, whether it's Jimmy Durante literally kicking the bucket in It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World <laughs> or other examples. By the way, that is still one of the funniest things in, in life, and you can't tell me otherwise. Um, but the uh, uh, this this ultimately says a lot about Tom's character to my mind because it's just like, okay, so a lot of this has been to prove his toughness, to prove that he is, to, to, to prove himself through his, masculinity and not so much about aspirations to power for him. It's about proving a point in the middle of a fist fight, which is something that Cagney would know about as well as the Warner brothers would know about in their early lives when they had to duke it out on the streets in order to, you know, get ahead. Um, and when he says, I ain't so tough, that's the, him relenting on the fact that he's probably gone as far as he can go with this persona that he's, <laughs> that he's carried on all his life. Um, and it, it winds him up in the hospital where he gets familial reconciliation. Um, he, you know, there's a reconciliation with, uh, with Mike, um, you know, there's this final moment with Ma where he gets a jab in with her uh, and it's established Tom's going to come home. We cut to the, to the powers home. Matt is visited by Patty Ryan who says that Tom's been taken by the schemer Burns gang from the hospital <laughs> And the uh and that that he's making an arrangement to leave town if they give up Tom. So it's like Patty O'Rion's like one of the few noble gangsters to ever exist where he's just like, Look, if one of my guys is gonna be, you know, beaten and tortured, I'd rather just get out of the game entirely rather than have another life on my hands and I'm like, Yeah, but didn't your gang kill other people? <laughs> <laughs> like Patty O'Rion is like not innocent or anything, but it's interesting how he's willing to be noble for this. So we have Mike waiting by the phone and waiting for an answer. He gets a phone call saying that they're going to bring Tom back. He tells Ma. Ma goes upstairs to get Tom's room ready. We hear the Victrola playing. I am forever blowing bubbles again. And uh, uh. <laughs> it's the the door gets knocked Mike opens the door, and Jimmy Cagney, the corpse of Jim, of Tom Powers, uh, wrapped up in bandages like a fucking mummy who has been through hell, <laughs> collapses on the floor. Now, I will ask, are you guys laughing because it looks ridiculous or because he looks like the mummy before the mummy came out? <laughs> Both. I, you see, okay. I... I I can't fully laugh at this scene. I I did last night because I was like, Oh, <laughs> he, this, that's an interesting, but this is the way I, when I first saw this film, I was in college and the image of his beaten, bloodied head wrapped up the way it was, was fucking terrifying. Yeah. Now I look at it and giggle because I've seen this movie so many times because it is, it is super mummy esque. But it's still brutal, like they just he's standing up one minute and then just down on the ground the next. it's kind gonna, of oh, go ahead.
0: I was going to say, I just remember the first time I watched this movie that scene was an absolute gut punch, and I, yes. I reround the video because I'm old people. I reround the video and watched <laughs> it again, and it just I mean, yeah, you're it's just so brutal. It's like one of the yeah, most yes. brutal endings to a movie I've ever seen.
4: Yeah, because especially, and, like, he, he was in the gutter, so you, he thought he had hit zero, rock yeah, bottom, yeah. and all of a sudden he gets kidnapped from the hospital, taken to an undisclosed location, gets the shit kicked out of him, killed, and then, like, that is actual zero. Like, yeah, 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 now you're done. That
2: is, and there's this, and and as Mike is looking over the body, we cut to a shot of Ma calling out for Tommy, like, when will he be home, and the song is still playing. Mike walks away toward the camera from his brother. And the final shot of this movie is the Victrola scratching and skipping because the music has ended. Uh, it's one of the most haunting endings to a gangster movie you'll ever get. There's an implication in my mind as I was rewatching it this week and a couple weeks back is that it's almost like it, one has to wonder if somebody like Mike who's been through war, who's been through this trauma, when he sees something like that, does that turn then turn him into a public enemy? Does that then turn him into just as much a monster as his brother had become in order to avenge his brother? Like, what, what would it be? I think ultimately is that he does see the life and death of his own brother in the span of his lifetime, and it's enough trauma to whack you over the head like a two-by-four, you know, like that. It's just it's unnerving. And then the movie ends the end of Warner brothers picture. Like we get the formation of a, this is a very tough movie, a very honest movie, a very rough around the edges in the best possible way. Um, this film was a huge hit. It has a hundred percent on rotten tomatoes to this day. It's amongst 29 cont- uh, 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 current reviews. um, the uh, the new york times in na- april 1931 they called it just another gangster film at the strand weaker than most of it most in its story stronger than most in its acting and like most maintaining a certain level of interest through the last burst of machine gun fire um, and time magazine called the, called the film well told, and unlike City Streets, this is not a Hugo-esque fable of gangsters fighting amongst themselves, but a documentary drama of the bandits standing against society. It carries to its ultimate absurdity the fashion of romanticizing gangsters, for even in defeat, the public enemy is endowed with grandeur. Um, now, and and this film is a huge box office success. It earns four hundred sixty-four thousand dollars domestically and ninety-three thousand. Uh, dollars abroad um, under the title enemies of the public and um, (laughs) but I want to go back to that time review because I want to say the last line again Um, uh, it carries to its ultimate absurdity the fashion for romanticizing gangsters for even in defeat the public enemy is endowed with grandeur Um, (laughs) it's interesting that we live in a world within the last 10 years where We've had the legacies of Scorsese and Coppola, and there have been people, film critics who get paid, to write articles of useless nonsense to indicate movies like Goodfellas being good bro hangout movies. I'm very glad we did this movie because I wanted to say this out loud none of these movies fully romanticize gangsterism. The closest one that I can find is the Godfather and even it shows consequences. Yeah. No one tries to glamorize or deify these people when they make these movies, because believe it or not, most of the people understand that the gangster lifestyle is one of consequence, failure and death. So they're not stupid. The Romantization of the gangster as it stood in the thirties for people having a Robin hood esque figure, just because you have empathy for it and have this idea ideation of it doesn't mean you don't understand what a gangster really is at heart and what they're doing is wrong. So it's interesting that we've come to a point in culture where people would write a trolley article like that in order to dis dismount the actual craft of people like Scorsese who then have to make a movie like the Irishman three hours, three and a half hours long to help you understand that you liked his movies for the wrong fucking reasons. <laughs> like like <laughs> I, anytime it's, I, I can get if you don't like the Irishman because it's uh, long, like that's one thing. If you're going to tell me it's boring, I'm going to be like, Oh, okay. Then, you know, it's bedtime. You can go watch the first 45 minutes of Goodfellas and then fall asleep because that's all you want. I get that. Um, But, you know, like, it's interesting. The Public Enemy, it does romanticize elements of it, but it is tough in its assessment and doesn't pull punches with the reality of its world. Neither does Little Caesar. Uh, Little Caesar may be a little bit more flashy, but it's still, it shows him in the gutter. He gets mowed down. That's the consequence of that lifestyle. Um, You know, both of these films... Are nominated for best for best story or screenplay in some form or fashion. Public Enemy is nominated for best story. It loses to the Dawn Patrol, which was a war film of the era. It is a very good film, but you know, obviously, the Public Enemy has endured far beyond the Dawn Patrol. Um, and I mean, really, we are left with like I guess my question to you guys is: as we've talked about these two films, where do you notice? Do you do? You, where do you notice this the most? Um, in the films that you watch today, what, what are you noticing from what we've just discussed?
0: Like to summarize it. I mean, what what do you mean? I'm sorry. I'm not sure I understand the question.
2: So like when we look at the tropes that we've discussed in this film that are present in this film, where are you seeing them the most within the last 20 years of, film? Uh, I see what you're saying. um, yeah, sorry.
0: I mean, like you, you're always going to go back to school. Sazy. Um, but I, when you were talking about the romanticization of of the gangster in the first forty five minutes of Goodfellas and everything, the movie that popped to my head was Wolf of Wall Street, and because yes. that is a <laughs> great movie. But you you talk about romanticizing, and I think where like the trolley critics get caught up is yes, you're seeing these cool guys who. Our best friends, they talk in a way that if we turn up to the office and we're like, hey you fucking cocksucker, we'd all get fired. Um but you can't <laughs> show the you, you can't show the devastation of their life choices without showing the um the highs, like why they're doing what they're doing. And if you think about Wolf of Wall Street, you've got that great montage where um DiCaprio is talking to the camera about all the drugs he's taking. Um and you're like, man, that is so cool. But then later on you see him literally unable to form words, crawling on the ground after having wrecked his car because he knows the FBI are listening. So to yeah. to say like, oh, they're romanticizing this lifestyle is like, no, you're just you're you're fixating on, if you want to call it the funny part of the movie, the high of the movie. And you're totally forgetting about the conclusion of the movie,
2: right? And and I and I think that you know, like the you there was a forward and an afterward in the Public Enemy. Um, Little Caesar doesn't get one. It doesn't get one until the 1954 reissue. And here, what's interesting is that in the attempts, obviously, to appease censors and whatnot, they ended up creating a genre that helps helps us as a society dissect elements of our world that we may not understand as Joe movie or whatnot. And, you know, like, yes, you, one could make the argument that, you know, well, you know, if you were being realistic about these gangster movies, you'd see them getting away with the crimes. And I'm like, yes, that's true. But more often than not, most of the gangster movies, if they've been done elegantly and correctly, do end up having people pay for it in the end. Like the Godfather trilogy took a while to get there, but it did do it. Yeah. Like, I mean, whether what, regardless of what you think of Godfather Part Three or whatever cut we're going to be getting in the next couple of weeks, um, I actually I'm, actually, I'm actually very so
0: excited so, for that. What, I've actually yeah, pre ordered like, it.
2: I'm kind of like, what are you gonna what What more can you do? Um, but uh, if they're done correctly, they do show the rise and the fall, as Andrew alluded to, with you know his knowledge on this subject. Like this is about this is about like the 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 roller coaster that they endure in life because of this choice that they make. Henry Hill, he falls. But the, what's funny about his fall is is that unlike the gangsters of the era, the evolution of the gangster genre was that the gangster doesn't acknowledge that he's done anything wrong. He still thinks he did the right thing. Yeah. And you as the audience, if you're watching the film like a normal person, would watch it and go, oh, he still doesn't understand that he got himself into this mess. All he's concerned with is that he's going to be a schmuck the rest of his life, eating egg noodles and ketchup, where the reality is that somebody like Henry Hill in real life kind of never lost his gangster touch. You know, he broke his witness protection program protection so many times and ended up, you know, still going back to drugs. So, like, it's, I mean, you know, and I'm not being a moralist here. It's just reality here. It's like when you do these movies correctly, it does show what goes around comes around because it's great storytelling. Well, and, then, I, I, and the I, thing that
0: uh, always happens in gangster movies is, or a lot of the time I should say, is the gangster dies alone. Uh, yeah. You you look at Godfather yeah. 1, Don Vito dies alone. His grandkid runs off right before he dies. And then you get that wonderful coda at the end of 3 where Michael, who spends three movies basically talking about how he wants to be legitimate and a family guy has no one around him when he dies um and if you look at uh if you look at both these movies tom dies alone i assume or at least ends up alone on the floor of his mother's house uh rico dies alone even though he both these guys had best friends and it it becomes a very lonely life that they've chosen
4: Yeah, yeah, and I was just gonna say. Oh, go. I think this this particular movie I viewed it. So I've always watched it through the lens of a gangster film, but I tried to watch it a little bit different this time around. I saw more of a wrap around, like a temperance movie that was actually wrapped around a gangster film. Uh, Because every time you see something bad happen on film, the characters that are the bad guys are the ones that have been drinking the entire time, and the idea that the idea that. If you are going to be a part of the good society of America, you need to follow the laws, and the law says you shouldn't be drinking. And if you do drink, you're going to turn into James Cagney.
2: Yeah, no, exactly, and it, and they very much like that's how the studios would prop these up, and were able to get away with the sensationalism and the sex appeal, for lack of a better term, that you would apply to these gangsters uh, to make a flashy film that the public wants to see. It's it's interesting because the studio they still have to do it to this day, but in a different way. But back then, the studios were trying to find the balance of what sells to the public, um, alongside of what does the public cry out for when they're outraged. Um, so, like they have to de- they have to balance desire, temptation, and outrage in this like big barrel called or Golden Age Hollywood that a lot of people are able to like come up with some of the most creative ways to utilize this format of storytelling because of those restrictions. It's not, it's not wonderful. You'd love to see more in these movies, but the bottom line is, is that's all they had the ability to do. The amazing part of it is that because of movies like this, I'll bring it back to the Irishman because I do think it's going to come up a lot when we talk about gangster movies of this era, because I do feel when it's all done, done, the Irishman to me is the greatest successor to these films on both an aesthetic level and a theme level because Tyler, Tyler made a very good point about uh, Tyler and Andrew, you make great points about the lonely life, the lonely lifestyle of this, because that movie is about ultimately is about how Frank Sheeran drives people out of his life like literally because of the job he does he has by the time he ends that movie he is left alone in that room uh asking for the door to be left open because he's still afraid somebody's going to come and kill him like that's what it's driven him to uh so like there's a there's elements prior to all that where the killing in the Irishman is very much like the killings in Little Caesar and Public Enemy where a lot of them are from afar very few of them if any are up close and they are meant to implicate a distance from that violence so that we see it as objectionable as it truly is as opposed to glamorizing and glorifying it which Tarantino does
4: but they're all very Tar- personal like they're very very yes. personal reactions to killing those individuals you know
2: yes yes and that and that's that's why these these stories don't go away because of our fascination with what drives one person to do those things and what what are the consequences of those actions? Think,
4: one thing, because we've talked Scor- Scorsese to death with this, I want to throw out one more, that modern interpretation, which is the television show The Wire. I feel like watching The Wire is very gangster uh, film from the 1930s. I, I mean, I got very similar messages from watching The Wire with drugs as you do with public enemy and al- alcohol. Uh, I don't know if yeah. you've watched The Wire, but I, I'd just love your take on that too.
2: I I agree. I I haven't watched The Wire in a while, but if I were to go back, I'm sure I would definitely find those allusions to it. Um, On an aesthetic level, I would point to Boardwalk Empire, because obviously. Um, but, But The Wire, no, that's definitely the next evolution of it, because now we're talking about a different type of prohibition, if you will, a different type of... Uh, inner city violence or inner city gangsterism and also the reactions of people around it. Um, That's a show that takes its time to detail the world that we get summed up for an hour and 20 minutes or an hour and 18 minutes in Public Enemy and Little Caesar. So in a in a great way, you're right, you know, that The Wire is a wonderful successor to what these gangster films started and like, and we should never discount television in that respect because it is the only place we're getting a lot of these great stories right now. But yeah. (laughs) And I would, and I would say that like a lot of uh, gangster films for the most part, unfortunately, unless they're not, unless they're made by Scorsese, they don't get the point of the, uh, of the way to tell those stories because they also hybrid them with action a lot. And then the two become, uh, to confluence with each other, it,
0: Scorsese understands that yes, you've got crime and violence going on, but at the end of the day, these movies are about people, and it's like we were saying that you have the consequences, or we see the consequences of their action, and you just to take Tarantino as as the the prime example here, his characters just do shit because it looks cool his whole thing if you look at pulp fiction all anyone in that movie is concerned about is looking cool or being cool are we cool it's the (laughs) word that is constantly brought up throughout that movie um but if you look at scorsese and his movies no one does anything because it looks good unless they're getting the flash suits you know they, they they kill a guy because that guy needs to be killed
2: yeah, they, t- they kill a guy because how dare they insult the fact that he used to be a shine boy. Yeah, they're not they're not afraid to go unload. And with Tarantino, I think Tarantino is a little bit more, predica- as you said, predicated towards that looking cool and that uh, hyper real violence. And, you know, like sensationalizing it now, Tar- Tarantino is doing it from the perspective of an exploitation fan and not necessarily. Uh, attempting or wanting to attempt to go into the realm Scorsese does the closest he ever gets is Jackie Brown, which is uh, a, a much deeper film than he's ever made before. And I, but th- and that's a film where the consequences are a little bit more actualized, but they are still on the surface about looking cool. Whereas Scorsese, every time he's done this, he's always showed the consequences and always showed the, uh the lifestyle as it is. No matter how pretty it looks.
0: <laughs> well, because Jackie Brown is actually based off uh, the novel Run Punch by Elmore Leonard, uh, who is a guy who knows how to write noir. <laughs> I mean, that man writes crime, and you know, uh, not to. I mean, he's very lighthearted. and you know, he he his characters are concerned with being cool as well. But you know, he shows the he does show the. Um, the impact of characters choices and the violence and it was funny the other night i was actually watching out of sight uh the soda Bird movie with lopez and clooney and i had forgotten this scene where steve Zahn's character joins um don cheadle's gang and they go and brutally murder a character and what's great is you don't see the violence you just see steve zan freaking out at at the violence that's being committed. No, it's,
2: it is. And Soderbergh is a very conscious filmmaker in that regard. And like, I, you know, that there is, I I love out of sight because it is the more tangible and realistic approach to what Tarantino does in Jackie Brown. Yeah. Um, And so, but yeah. And as we, as we say all of this, we're, we're keeping in mind that like all of this begins on a soundstage at Warner Brothers, just to make yet another movie, just to yet make yet another movie after that first movie is a success I don't they they didn't conceive of creating the gangster genre. It happened through a series of circumstances that ended up being to their advantage as a studio because of what their appeal was to the the primary market of the theaters that they owned and knowing that keeping their finger on the pulse frankly of current of their current situation mm-hmm. uh in a way that. Uh, other studios would never get and arguably Warner Brothers still has that finger on the pulse in their own way they don't have it with superhero movies but they have it with pretty much anything else they're willing to do in terms of showing that kind of realism on screen because they will work with somebody like Scorsese whether it's The Departed or Goodfellas and whatnot so like they they never really lost that um that panache for it um gentlemen we've talked for three hours on two wonderful films i want to thank you i want to thank you both for coming aboard to chat about this um really quickly give us a plug for uh pop culture Brews. tell us what you got coming up
0: all right um what do we have coming up tyler Oh, I think our
4: I think our next one is actually Mean Girls. Oh yes, it? the <laughs> ultimate
0: gangster movie. Uh, mean, mean Girls, wow. Mean Girls. Yeah. Um, yeah, we we speaking of gangster movies, we did record an episode um, for The Godfather. Um, one I am actually really excited about because I tasted this beer yesterday. Uh, the Paul Crowther who guest starred on our star Wars trilogy, he's actually made a beer for the movie alien. He sent me the recipe because he's over in uh, the UK. Um, we're both brewing a batch of it and I am really excited for this beer. It's a Japanese British hybrid and we'll be drinking that while we discuss all things alien.
4: Yes. I'm really really looking for that one. And if you haven't watched, I haven't listened to our, uh, Star Wars trilogy, uh, that is definitely a good one to go and sit down and listen to for three hours
0: straight. <laughs> Those are really fun. <laughs> we actually we actually recorded all of them on one day and we were just shattered by the end of it. <laughs> uh,
2: and I will always point people back to the Apocalypse Now one because that is my favorite of the ones you guys did. It's mainly because anytime I can hear people talk about apocalypse now <laughs> in the mode that you guys can <laughs> i'm all down for it
4: <laughs> we get we get in birdies wasn't your uh wasn't your cup of tea oh no it is
2: it, it is but just <laughs> i i you know like apocalypse now is a is a film that i'm not i'm not uh, super high on the movie but i do like listening to people discuss it um but anyway thank you guys again for sitting down with me to do this thank you um, this is gonna wrap it up for yesteryear ballyhoo review Uh, You guys can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter. Um, You'll hear those at the back bumper. On the next episode, I believe we will be talking about one of the greatest films ever made. Um, But until next time, good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at BallyhooPod and on Instagram at BallyhooReviewPod. That's R-E-V-U-E. Our theme was composed by Matty Ghost. Be sure to check him out on Twitch for more of his music. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Be sure to watch his YouTube series Chewing the Scenery. This is Zach, signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification.